This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. Okay, Mr. Bain, here we are. Here we are, the redesigned Strength and Anger Studios. Episode 29 of the Strength and Anger podcast. Mm-hmm. And doing something new again. We are videotaping this regular episode. Yeah. Um, we've got, uh, at the time of this recording, we're going to have an episode go up on Extra with Howard Pendros. Dr. Howard Pendros. Dr. Howard Pendros. But today we're going to record one of our regular episodes mm-hmm. and... If it looks terrible, then we won't have to post the video. We'll still post the audio. We know this half of the screen won't look terrible. That That's a for sure. Sure. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, Ben, today we're going to talk about the origins of the monolift. That's an important piece of powerlifting history right here. That I don't think a story has really been told before. Uh, but let's start with any feedback from past week uh, past week episodes. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the collaborations we've done and uh, interviews and, and the collaborations we're going to do uh, get a lot of positive feedback on that. I've gotten a lot of folks that listen to the Everybody Sucks collaboration. Really, really like that. So thank you again to Stan and Bree for being on with us. Uh, already getting some some good feedback on the uh, uh, West Side versus the World, Mr. Michael Fahey interview. Uh, even as long as it was, it's quite the saga. And trust me, you guys didn't even get everything. It was great. No, I mean, we got, again, we got another 20 minutes yeah. beyond. And probably could have had, we could have talked for another hour easily with Michael. Yeah. And, and Will. Oh, yeah, there, there's going to be more, so trust me, uh, a lot more to come on that. But, yeah, everything positive on that, people are digging uh, kind of the style. And I think, you know, being a little uh, self-centered here, I think you and I are getting better at podcasting together. And so uh, playing, you know, off of the uh, the guests we've been having. So I think it's been fun to, to reach out and do the extra episodes. Obviously, you know, help kill some time right now. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of time. I know you're still working. Um, I am-ish working. yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, we're yeah. coming up with ideas though. We're building more content and yeah, building the, building the brand strength and anger. You see, you know, superior handwriting behind us. So. Yeah, we'll have uh, an artist come in and maybe yeah. do something a little bit fancier the next time. Jackie Stone could maybe come up with a strength and anger logo for us. We, we need the S to be like that old school. Like remember in middle school and high school, people Where do you like, do like uh, the lines. Yeah, we need we need that S. I think it'd be pretty fun. I probably could figure out how to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my feedback has been people enjoy the the history aspect of things. Oh which, yeah fit with what we're going to do today um and uh i think the fahey interview i haven't heard a lot on yet because it just dropped as of this recording you know a few days ago um we, we'd been talking it up and so when i told people that it was out that it was like immediate like yes can't wait and then uh you know five hours later <laughs> it was like all right i took a nap afterwards it was amazing uh please don't ever do a three and a half hour episode again <laughs> Well, and it's uh, it's interesting because I think I'm starting to get the idea. It's kind of like with clickbait mm-hmm. when you have to have a certain title. Yeah. So I've started to learn what to name things for the titles of the episode. I So far, mm-hmm. we've gotten more listens to the Fahey interview than we have at this time and releasing of the podcast than other episodes from what I've seen. Sure. And I think it was because we named it the story behind West Side vs. the World as yeah. opposed to what I was going to originally name it was just – interview with michael fahey yeah because uh, yeah the story behind west side versus the world i think because everyone knows that any documentary 
read between the lines, Tiger King, it has multiple layers to how how it came to be about. Everyone's got their version of the story, and you know, usually in between, there's you know the actual truth. And so, uh, what Michael shared during that episode was uh, it was a lot. Well, I think, like we said, I think there's a documentary behind the documentary that theoretically you can make a documentary about Michael Fahey's dad. Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, one hundred percent. I mean, classic Florida man right there. Yeah, a Florida man. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think that was good. I don't want to do an interview for every episode, but I think when you've got something like that, when there's such a, a concrete, distinct story sure. with, you know, how West Side vs. the World came to be and, you know, the story behind getting it produced and the legal issues around getting it produced. <laughs> getting it actually made. I mean, you heard the story about how Michael was up essentially 24 hours straight editing this thing and yeah he, i love the story about how he was like he'd upload the first 20 minutes to the ftp site <laughs> and then he'd pull the plug because it wasn't really ready and they're like i, I don't know what's going on i, I uploaded it yeah, i'll just bring a flash drive to the screening I'll, I'll be there the day before oh my gosh so unbelievable but other than feedback bane what is going on you know it's uh building a new routine really is what what i'm doing lately and uh you know training at home uh thank you very much obviously we've got a 316 barbell uh, up and running for a select few which basically is me uh working you know i'm, I'm very very blessed that i can still work right now and still do my full-time job and it's interesting right now you know logistics is being looked at very very hard because of you know inventories and supply chain uh, very much affecting the battle against covid and so there's a lot of talk about how supply chains are, are running. And, you know, Howard did a post about uh, the just-in-time concept just in time concept of uh, supply chain and logistics. And it really, like, we're solving a lot of those problems now. And it's really been interesting. Could you describe that for somebody who has no idea what you're talking about? Sure, yeah, I, I can do that. So just-in-time, the, the idea behind that is that you have inventory for essentially one to two days out uh, of your anticipated orders. And so... When there's a rush on something, think about when like uh, Tickle Me Elmo's came out, you know, however, 20 years ago. They basically anticipated there would be a rush right at Black Friday and then another rush a couple weeks before Christmas. They did not anticipate this swell of uh, of demand, and so the supply wasn't there for it. And that's how just-in-time kind of works. It was developed mostly for the automotive industry, so they could reduce the amount of obviously very expensive parts inventory that they had to keep. And then it got dispersed into this quote-unquote best practice of supply chain – and now we're, we're feeling the effects of it where, you know, suddenly we have this shortage of toilet paper and other basic needs that we should never, ever run short on because this stuff is generally cheap to produce. It's cheap to store. and doesn't go bad. Sure. Uh, going back to the Tickle Me Elmo, there's, a, <laughs> there's always those conspiracy theories, Bane, that go around that when you've got that hot toy mm-hmm. that they purposefully reduce supply to increase demand. I know that Nintendo has gotten accused of that. Of, yep you know, purposely, you know, kind of holding back inventory so mm-hmm. that it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't get a Nintendo Switch because everybody's buying it. Yeah, so Do that's... Do you buy into any of that? Uh, I wouldn't say I buy into it. I mean, I watch it happen. Okay. I mean, uh, that, I mean, could that have happened with Tickle Me Elmo and other... It doesn't seem... 100%. It doesn't seem like there's been that same hot... Maybe because, I don't know. I mean, I have kids now. I don't remember there being the same hot toy recently. There's the, been a few, uh, but nothing like that or some of the ones around that time. I would frame. say Hatchimals was the closest thing to it. I do remember that, yes. At Christmas. That's quite the closest. And there there was some accusations around that. And I think, again, there there is, if you if you have focus groups that are telling you, like, yeah, this is a hot toy, like, the, and there's almost no negative feedback, there's going to be someone who's going to dial those knobs just a little bit because they know that coming into January when they can kind of release the supply chain because there's a huge amount of stuff that comes over from Asia just 
in anticipation of Lunar New Year. So they push a lot of stuff out as inventories will stack back up after, uh, you know, the fourth quarter. And so if they can sustain that momentum of purchases th- through that, that kind of helps them, you know, year over year. So, yeah, there, there's definitely some uh, economic theory behind that. Okay. We could probably spend a whole podcast talking oh, about I could, yeah. Bain supply chain theories. But <laughs> we'll move on. Yes, we shall. So, Stone, what's going on with you? So we started a YouTube channel, which, we is, did. which is why we're recording uh, this. And we recorded one with uh, an interview with Howard Penrose, which will be up by the time this video goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to try that, some that different was, things. That was a saga editing that one, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, it, and we'll, this one might be similar, but mm-hmm. it was something where the audio on the video was not very good. But we also had the audio on my computer, which was separate. Sure. And so trying to combine those together. Um, was challenging, not mm-hmm. impossible. Um, but I'm also not a tech savvy, you know, video audio editor. I'm kind of learning on the fly because we, I've got no extra time. Michael Fahey, we could talk to him. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he knows how to do all that. Um, but if you asked him how to do it, it would be like an hour long answer minimally. Yeah. It's it's like starting to take me down the rabbit hole of logistics. It just kind of starts flowing. Right. Um, and. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to put up past episodes. Yep. Um, so I started with one, and I think uh, two should be up later today by the time we've recorded this. Nice. I'm also going to try to start – this This takes even more editing, but I'm going to try to take little snippets mm-hmm. out. Um, that's something popular people do on YouTube is take out – you know, of a podcast, take out, you know, a particularly interesting soundbite. Sure. So I took out the one of the origin of strength anger, which yeah. I think is a question we get quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was right at the beginning of that first episode. I mean, so it was, do we not look strong and angry? You guys see us <laughs> now, right? Like, come on. So uh, I'm going to put up all past episodes, probably with some kind of slideshow or picture. Sure. And then I'm going to eventually try to, depending on how long this quarantine lasts, oh, man. I'll, I'll start to try to pick out you know certain snippets and put them up as separate videos mm-hmm. and when i say videos um i mean i guess it could be videos like this yeah or it could just be you know a picture of us smiling with the wpo hat on and uh you know that snippet of soundbite sure sure i'm excited for that it's uh i think it's cool just to have these different mediums to to reach people because uh, i think you know we started this with the idea that we both is like talking about the history of the sport and kind mm-hmm. of the things we like talking about. But also I think there's a, there's an audience that wants to hear these things and just the more mediums we're able to, uh, you know, engage with. And I think the, the more people we can reach and uh, bring the, the gospel of strength and anger. Well, and I know that I personally got into podcasts from mm-hmm. YouTube and yeah. I watch a lot of YouTube videos when I'm, you know, doing housework or whatever. Now sure. I often listen to podcasts when I'm doing that, but I'll still watch YouTube videos when I've got the Wi-Fi yeah. connection. But, you know... You have uh, the best Wi-Fi. It's very fast. Uh, one of the podcasts <laughs> I listen to is Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. And mm-hmm. they had that policy or that practice, I guess, is more the, the correct word of, you know, taking little snippets of their podcast. And I'd listen to this, you know, five-minute snippet. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want more. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I get more of this? And it's like, oh, there's a podcasting app already on my phone. But I do think there's a, a certain group of people who don't. So basically, it's a gateway drug is what you're saying. Yeah. YouTube's uh, our gateway. Got but it. there are certain people who don't really want to download something and have a separate app sure. for podcasting. And there are some people who consume their podcast, like the Joe Rogan podcast, yeah. obviously much you know, uh, much more highly produced than this podcast oh, yeah. would ever be. Give it time. <laughs> but I think there's some people they exclusively listen to or, quote, watch Rogan mm-hmm. on YouTube. And yep. there's a certain segment of people, that's the only way that they consume media is, you know, through their phone and on YouTube. And so I think that's another way we could, you know, get the, uh, the content out there. Get the strength of the masses and the anchor. <laughs> uh, other than that, Bane, what is great? 
in the same vein, technology is great. Uh, through this whole uh, COVID situation, you know, I've been able to stay virtually connected to, you know, my coworkers. Obviously, we're using Zoom, uh, even though everybody's saying there's some big conspiracy behind Zoom now. And what's uh, the conspiracy behind Zoom real quickly? So the big one, with, the two ones with that is that it's spyware and malware. Uh, the other one is it's not a conspiracy. It's happening where they have what they call Zoom Raiders, and they're people that can actually bomb into Zoom meetings. They figure out a way to hack into them. Uh, I mean, that I believe. I mean, it's such a new technology. I would believe that it's yeah. not anything too secure yet. And Generally, yeah. And I think Zoom is just – it's so simple. Sure. And they just haven't had the intricate uh, you know, security measures that like a Skype has put in, but that's also what makes Skype a piece of shit tool. Well, and does anybody really care about the Stone family, you know, Easter Zoom get-together that we're going to do in a couple of days? I mean, sure, someone could write into that. They're not going to get anything interesting except for my my dad and my uncles going through the wine they're drinking and the food that they've made. Sure, sure. And, and, yeah, but it's... it's or the Jackie Stone, Richie's High School, yeah. you know, staff meetings. I'm sure no one really wants to hear about that. No, but you never know. People people just do things to be an annoyance. That's usually what hackers do is they'll do it at a, at a corporate level, at a personal level, just to be, you know... They Fair. get joy out of that. So, but that said, technology has been awesome. I'm able to stay virtually connected to to coworkers, to my global friends, uh, using like the WhatsApp, using uh, video messaging and audio messaging on Instagram. Uh, it's been great uh, connecting with people across the pond. You know, we've got a, a good uh, amount of friends and listeners uh, over in the UK. Uh, pretty exciting. I talked to uh, Emma. Uh, was it over the weekend? And tentative plan. This is this is tentative. Breaking news here talked or like physically talked or just we, messaged? We were, we were messaging. Okay. Because uh, she actually called me mm-hmm. on something and I didn't, it was a Facebook call, which makes it sure. obviously way cheaper, mm-hmm. but I wasn't able to talk to her. We eventually emailed back and forth, but I wasn't sure if you actually physically talked to her. We, we talked about it, but there was like a six hour time difference and it was fairly late for her. So she wasn't uh, up for that. Sure. Uh, but it sounds like I am going to be heading over to uh, Body Power UK. Wow. And at uh, the end of October, man, you're going to be busy because yep. you'll have the WPO right before that. And then that weekend, Body Power UK. Yeah. So basically, I'll be getting done with the WPO and then a couple days later, jumping on a plane to uh, to London and uh, bringing the uh, the hype, as it were, uh, over to the to the UK. So it was pretty cool. Actually, I, I did another podcast interview last night with uh, Dr. Fred Clary and uh, specifically talking about uh, another gentleman. It was Brian Smith was his name. Uh Old school, like basically platform manager and hype guy uh, from the 70s and 80s. And sounds like this was kind of a thing back then and, and you know, been able to re- resurrect that. And it's kind of cool to get uh, some opportunities to travel around and do it. So. Yeah, I know Ernie Franz had his guys in the past that were kind of his platform managers. That's where that I got that term from mm-hmm. was, was Ernie Franz. He always had a platform manager, which sure. wasn't always necessarily a spotter, but mm-hmm. was somebody that would you know, kind of take care of the platform and make sure that, you know, the monolift was set at the right height or, and, and, and often cases the squat rack height in the back in the day and that sure. kind of thing. Sure. So, so, so yeah, so exciting stuff at the because of technology uh, that's been able to happen. And also tonight, Thursday, I'm a big Brooklyn nine, nine fan. I don't think you watched that show. No, uh, I know I've talked about it a couple of times. Tonight is the heist. It's an ongoing uh, every season episode where they do a, a heist and it's a, uh, a police precinct and it's probably the funniest episode every season. So tonight is the heist, and I'm very excited for that. Okay. Well, by the time we release this, it will have happened. And uh, yep. it'll be on Hulu and go watch the heist. Okay. Interesting. So. Yeah. You know, technology is interesting. You know, I have thought about this. It's not obviously the most positive time in the world right now. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this might be the best time in human history for people to be quarantined. 
Yeah. Because people still can't. I mean, imagine even 20 years ago. Oh, my gosh. And let's go back 40, 50 years when, you know, not every person had a computer at their desk. Not every person had a phone at their desk. Right. I mean, how could you have worked from home 50 years ago, even 20 years ago? There just wasn't the technology set up for that. And Zoom, I mean, are having just video chat. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was like something out of the Jetsons. And can you imagine, you know, some of these meetings? Now, there was, I'm sure people would have done conference calls because um, those have been going on forever. Um, I've got a funny story about that when I'm done talking about this. But, um, yeah, it, it is a good time, I suppose. Or it's a, it, it's, it's a time in human history in which the t- technology exists mm-hmm. to connect people in a way that some things can still get done during this quarantine. Oh, yeah. Um, not gyms, unfortunately. Yeah. But... So funny aside on that, uh, Ernie Franz tells this story about they used to do, you know, a big conference call with the APF executive board before mm-hmm. there was email. And, you know, they, they he would get, you know, a bill for, you know, the length of this call. And it would always seem like it was longer than he thought it was. Okay. And what happens? what happened was there was two or three individuals who were staying on the call after Ernie and everybody else said goodbye. And they'd just stay silent, but they'd stay on the call. And they'd stay talking, and Ernie stayed on one day, come to find out that all of them were conspiring to kick Ernie out and take over the APF. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> There's been many stories like that, but that's one of my favorite ones. I won't name the people because they are, some of them are still involved in powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I remember hearing that story. There's been many takeovers of the APF. Yeah, sounds like it. Some oh. some real, some fake. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Stone, what is great? Um, I'll, and we t- I talked about her last week, but my wife is great. I mean, she is. I like Jackie. And I, last week, I I should clip that out from last week of me talking about. You should make that like her alert whenever she gets a text message. <laughs> my wife is great. Yeah, my wife is great. Uh, I should definitely clip this one out. Last week, I talked about her birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's she's really doing an amazing job. Um, she's working. She's helping school the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, she's dealing with me, who's been. You're you know, probably neurotic right now. Semi-depressed yeah. and out of sorts. And you talked about, you know, kind of having a routine. I've, I've started maybe to try to mm-hmm. develop some kind of routine. It's very hard sure. because I'm the type of person. <laughs> I'm the type of person that kind of rises to the occasion. And then, like, they used to talk about the Bulls. They would, like, you know, they would play really, really well against great opponents. Mm-hmm. But then when they had a crappy opponent, it's like they barely beat them because they, they played the level. They of played their... to the level. So. Yep. I'm that type of person that I think if I have a challenge in front of me definitively that I absolutely have to do, I will rise to the occasion Mm -hmm. versus if, you know, it's like, well, I don't have to get up at any time. Well, all right, I'll just lay in bed, you know, sulking until 9 a.m. and not do anything. So I'm I'm trying to get away from that. So uh, a long, long winded way of saying my wife is great because she's getting up every morning. She's on Zoom. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, she's she's taking over the kids schooling along with my help mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess just my son my daughter's doing a few things as well but sure she's doing an amazing job through this there, quarantine there is only doc mcstuffins we know that yeah yeah right exactly <laughs> uh but she's doing a great job through all this so uh hats off to her um and what she's been doing from a work and family perspective that's, so she's great that's awesome and you know jackie is great and all, all those wives are supporting husbands right now because there's a lot of let's be real here there's a lot of guys in a similar boat where whether they're employed or not they're stressed. They're they're scared right now. There's a lot of scared people out there. Well, we talked about that with our yep. Everybody Sucks crossover. That yep. I mean, it, not that the gym here is my total existence. I think, you know, you know, you got God, you got family, and yep. then you have the gym. But mm-hmm. it, it's up there high. Yeah. Um, and I mean, top, top three, obviously. <laughs> right. But, I mean, I think 
a lot of people find value and meaning in their work. And that's they why, do. you know, when they start to talk about automation and, you know, I don't know if I believe it or not, but, you know, there's, Fear the machines. there's some experts that think, well, if there's so much automation that will have, you know, vast unemployment like we're having right now and how that could cause many societal issues. Because even if you give people money, mm-hmm. that doesn't give them meaning and value in life. Well, yeah, like, we get to stay home for two months. We get a $1,200 check. It's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, that that <laughs> that really covers all of this really well. But no, I think if, if you don't have value and meaning in your life, mm-hmm. whether you're given money or not, that's why I don't think socialism and communism works. Yeah. If you don't have incentives to do things, then I don't think you're going to do them. I, I agree 100%. And so what, where I was running with that before we dive into the Powerlift USA uh, throwback is, you know, while I was training last night, I thought about the same thing that you were just talking about. Is like, you know, typically I rise to the occasion and, and, and I think it's important. And, and I said to myself, like, this is a situation where you're, it's very fluid and very gray, like what to do, right? And to me, it was, I have to just keep moving. Whatever it is I'm doing. And, you know, the weights weren't crazy. I'm still getting used to all that. I'm doing a lot of speed work uh, right now, just getting back, used to being under the bar again. But it was... I have to keep moving. I have to keep moving. And I think you relate to this too, is that there are people who I don't realize are counting on me to keep moving for them to keep moving as well. Right. And and that that's that's been a big help. And I and I hope that maybe reaches a couple people that there are people that are counting on you to keep moving forward because otherwise they're gonna sit back and they're gonna regress. Right. So keep moving forward. Yeah, it, it, it's challenging. Um, it is. But anyway, let's move on to something a little bit more fun. Yeah, you can, uh, you can use that little soundbite too. Yeah, forward. the Pulsa throwback. Throwback, throwback, throwback. And we've got a, a pretty interesting episode. I'll show it here. We can do that now because uh, we have a camera. There you go. We've got the man, Donnie Thompson. Super D. I'm over from, at your room. Yeah, from June. Don't follow him on Instagram. And definitely do not DM him. Don't do DM. not DM him. Don't DM him a question. I, I actually almost commented on that post that I am making multiple burner accounts to give you more followers, <laughs> which I still might do, Donnie. Yeah, that's for his storage shed IG <laughs> for his like his personal one. Yes. So June 2011. What were you doing, Bane? June 2011. June 2011. Well, it's uh, the month of my wife's birthday, so I would have been celebrating that. So 2011. So we're talking nine years ago. So Ella is, you know, a year and a half old. Uh, we had just moved to Chicago. I was working in Lincolnwood. I was running a brokerage out there uh, that has since been acquired, and the ac- acquiring company has now shut its doors. Uh, all that all that happened in the last eighteen months. Uh, it's completely separate of COVID. And yeah, I think Nick would have. We would have just started talking about Nicole getting her first group fitness license at that point through okay. Les Mills. And. So what was she doing? Was she just solely a stay-at-home mom prior to that? Or was she working part-time? Or you said she worked in the restaurant industry as well, right? She, she did for a little while. Uh, so this is actually an interesting story. This is, this is how Nick and I have actually made our life work. This is the craziness that is us. Living in Iowa, and I had gotten out of the restaurant industry, and she decided to as well. She went to work for Geico, actually. Geico had a huge call center uh, down in Iowa City and uh, the Coralville area. Geico, which is an insurance company. Correct. Correct. Okay. You can save up to 15%. And not sponsoring us, but they could. <clears throat> yeah. So shameless plug. So Nick was going down there driving every day, and it's it's thirty miles uh, from Cedar Rapids to Iowa City. And she told me one night when she got home, she said, "You know, I dropped the kids off at the daycare that you know held them for four hours a day in between our shifts." And she said, "I just cried the whole way." So well, what's wrong? She's like, "I hate leaving our kids at the daycare." And I said, "Well, what would it take for us to 
or what, what, what would fix all that? She's like, I, if I just didn't go to work, I'm like, all right, cool. We'll just figure it out. And she quit the next day and she didn't have a traditional job other than being mom, which by the way, mom is a full-time job. Never get that twisted. Uh, um, there's no doubt. Having been home and obviously not the full-time parent because yeah. my wife is there as well, but mm-hmm. I had a, a stint when Jacob was born. I was home with him by myself three days a week, and mm-hmm. that was about as much as I could handle with just one infant. Right. I'll, I'll go slay dragons. I'll go sell stuff. I'll go get as uncomfortable as possible to not be the stay-at-home parent. Yeah. But my, my wife was wired for that, and just seeing the peace in her eyes, even though it was stressful for us from a financial standpoint, uh, being a stay-at-home mom, and then from there, she was able to kind of develop her personality and what she wanted to do, and she you know, still loves to teach. That was her original major in, in college. And she found that group fitness was a way she could b- combine her passions of teaching fitness and still be flexible enough to, to be the mom she wants to be. Yeah, it makes sense. So that's, that's how that all happened. In the, and it was actually, would have been right around, yeah, Nick, Nick had, like I said, just started to get that, uh, that license uh, process started. So, okay. Um, but anyway, what were you doing in June 2011? Uh, I believe June 2011, I would have been kind of right into my stint working at RightFit. Okay. You know, and I've kind of told this story before, but I worked for a company prior to that, Velocity Sports Mm -hmm. Performance. Um, Huge place. The the same size as this facility here, 20,000 square feet. Much velocity, Um, very fast. Yeah, and it was was an awesome facility. It's unfortunate that the overhead was just way too high. Um, and it never was going to work the, the way the business was set up, mm-hmm. which is too bad. It was a great training system. It's a great facility. We could have run meets there forever. Um, but so I, I moved, good. yeah, as a result of them essentially changing the way they did business, uh, I moved on to RightFit, which was a company that had rented space out of Velocity. Mm-hmm. And this would have been right around the time that I would have started to kind of dip my toe into the special needs stuff. Okay. When I first started uh, with RightFit, all I did was personal training and then sports performance training because mm-hmm. that was my specialty. I, at Velocity, all I did was train athletes, a little small amount of group fitness work. At athletes? Yeah. Yeah, supposedly. Three syllables. Yeah. And uh, at RightFit, I think just from the fact that I stuck around long enough, eventually it was like trainers would leave. In the personal training realm, turnovers is huge. I mean, oh, yeah. It's very high. It's a very high turnover business. And... Um, you know, trainers would leave and we'd have clients there. And I had, you know, maybe talked with the parents and been familiar with them. And so eventually, you know, I started taking over more and more special needs clients, mm-hmm. starting with some of the ones that were, quote, easier, and then eventually becoming the one that took the ones that were very, quote, challenging. So <coughs> that is uh, going back to June 2011. But so what was happening in Powerlifting USA? So this is one that is... Just before the 3,000-pound total, and I can't remember what issue we had up uh, after our WPO episode or during our WPO episode, but this was just before the 3,000 total. Yeah, it was, it was actually interesting reading that article about, about the, how This is a great article for, with Donnie. It was an interview with Donnie Thompson, and uh, you know, some of the things that stood out to me, his body weight at that uh, time yeah. was 384, and I think now he's down, what, in the 280 range or yeah. maybe at least 300. Yeah. Um, I he's, think he's sub three. I know that. He yeah. is sub three. And, you know, here's a direct quote. I will do anything it takes to get this 3,000 total. So I, I think that, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, that adds up. Um, and then he talked to, you know how we talked about that NURB meet, the, the yes. Northeastern Record Breakers That was meet? a very interesting part of this article. I'd love to hear more about this, but I remember that being a big deal. It was the first big raw meet. Mm-hmm. 
according to Donnie, I don't know. Uh, it, it makes it adds up because NURB never happened again. Uh, Raw Unity happened, but yep. NURB was done. Yep. Supposedly, the promoters of NURB were going to pay expenses for all the big lifters. So that's why Donnie went. Yeah. Because, again, Donnie talks about here, his goal was a 3,000-pound total, not to be the biggest Raw lifter. Right. But he figured, hey, you know, if they're going to pay my expenses and there's prize money, yeah. Uh, I'll dip my toe into raw. Let's get paid. I'm, you know, I'm still a strong raw lifter, yeah. and he did well there. I think he squatted, what did we say, 800 it raw? Was, it was nine, I think. Yeah. I mean, he had he had good raw lifts. He, you know, he obviously got a good amount of equipment, but, mm-hmm. you know, he had a solid day there. But, you know, the promoter said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll be sending you a check with the expenses and the prize money, and wrong. wrong. Never happened. <laughs> so, NURB, uh, NURB. So, so, what's the lesson, kids? Get paid up front. Yeah. Jeez. Or at least have the money in an escrow, right? Something, man. Like, Something, right? If, if they're telling you they're going to pay expenses, here's the thing. They should be sending your flight itinerary, and they should be sending your your hotel. And then when you get to the hotel, you should not be presenting your Or company. at least you, you book it, and then they send you a check based on that amount. I'm going to politely disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I guess it depends on the setup. I mean, yeah. we've had a couple speakers here, and that's how we've done it with them. Sure. So it depends on your relationship with the person, I suppose. Totally does. In this case, it sounds like that's what Tommy should have done. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Um, and then we had, of course, uh, a West Side Barbell. West Side Barbell. Um, I thought this one was pretty interesting. It had uh, the top five, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a part three on the deadlift. Right. And some of the interesting things on there was that, you know, at least in this setup, they did speed squats and mm-hmm. speed deadlifts together on the same day. So what you're um, doing on speed days, you're doing speed squats and deadlifts. Right. And how I've set up some of our Midwest Side, Midwest Side training, um, like I did today. Um, I would do, you know, speed squats one week, and mm-hmm. then the next week speed deadlifts, and alternate weeks. Um, and the gotcha. third week have a have a deload in there. Gotcha. Um, and then max effort wise, and max effort wise, um, we had alternating squat, deadlift, and kind of occasionally throw a you know, a max triple. I don't know if they ever went to wonder at max on Good Mornings. That seems yeah, a little yeah. sketchy. I I've never seen that, but I mean, you never know. Right. You know, so what's the worst that could happen? Uh, you blow out your back, especially on your rounded back at morning, which crack, I don't recommend. Crack your L5. You know, and, and, and this is late in power. I'm not criticizing Powerlifting USA because, mm-hmm. you know, it's still it was still a well-made magazine. Yeah. And looked, looked you know, looked well done. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of, quote, advertorials. I had to look up that word. But advertorials. Could, can you define that for, yeah, so it's for kind the of, viewers here? It's kind of like a cross between an... Uh, an advertisement and an editorial. And Howard has done some of these in some mm. of his magazines where it's like, and he'll have to, you know, kind of play that fine line where it's like, is he writing an article for them on, you know, electrical motor analysis or is he talking about his empath and his mm. system? You know, and if he's talking about empath, that's more of an advertorial where he's, you know, it's an advertisement where he's talking about how the system works. And there's how a, you bring value. There's a decent amount of those in this issue gotcha. um, as opposed to just, you know, it's like, you know, it's an article, so mm-hmm. it's more than just, you know, print of an advertisement. Um, but it's like, oh, yeah, there's two pages, but this is really just an advertisement. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'll, I'll, I'll scroll through here, see if I can find the top 50 men. Ah, uh, here we go. Super, Boom, look at that. Super heavyweight. Okay, so at this time, again, this was before the 3,000-pound total. Number one, though, was Donnie Thompson, super 2905. Deep. And this is as of uh, June 2011. Um, at least at the publication. Mm-hmm. Number two, Gary Frank, 2805. Who hopefully we'll be seeing very soon. Number three, 2799, Jeff Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four, we've got 
27-33 for Chad Ikes. Well, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, and we'll just round it up top five. 27-05, Anthony Bologna, Tony Bologna, who I remember. Chad Ikes is one who – His name is really Tony Bologna. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Chad Ikes is one who was very much, you know, kind of in um, – he was an elite FTS-sponsored lifter. Mm-hmm. And he was he, very strong guy, obviously. At this time, he was number four all time. Wow. But his training lugs were infamous because he he did have very bad sleep issues. Mm-hmm. But his training lug would be like, yeah, I worked up to a heavy single. And then, you know, didn't do anything else because, you know, barely got – I got like an hour of sleep last night. Hmm. And, and I remember Billy Minaw, who's a, who's a popular guy online at the time mm-hmm. and, and still is today. Now he's just on Facebook. Um, criticizing Chad Ike so much, and Ike's kind of followed more like that Franz Rocher, okay. you know, kind of model of just you know heavy singles in gear. Right. right. Um, but you know his training logs would be like, you know, work up to a heavy triple, and you know only got uh, an hour and a half of sleep over the last couple days. So yeah, he was kind of infamous on Elite FTS. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know a lot of well-known people here. Jeff Lewis is another guy. I mean, talk about super heavyweight. He was just gigantic. It's a unit. Uh, like 500 pounds. Good Lord. Um, uh, let's see if I can find his. Uh, I don't Did, know if it, Didn't we have a guy weigh in so, for the summer bash at like five plus? Yes. Jeff Lewis. Everybody else is like seven times body weight. Jeff Lewis is like 5.29 times body weight. And it, it, wow. it, it let's see if it lists his body weight. 240.0 kilos. See if you can and that take, is, that, take that to American. Let's take that to Freedom Units real quick. Jeff Lewis is one where at he lifted – also USAPL and what did you say it was two forty what two forty kilos at a USAPL meet he basically twenty nine yeah he basically collapsed because the spotters couldn't handle him in the weight oh um, infamously but yeah Danny Thompson was the top wait 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 rewind for a second you saying USAPL spotters couldn't handle the weights that were being done <laughs> some this, little sixteen year old couldn't handle and this this was years ago this was years ago so let's move on to the top fifty all time one hundred five okay. females we've got someone we've talked about again a lot. Uh, Margaret Kirkland, 1,052 total. And wow. that was at in Rosemont, Illinois yeah. in 07. Beautiful um, Rosemont, Illinois. I, I believe I was there for, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was AWPC Worlds, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. You have Jennifer Maley with a 948 total. You have, who's very well known for her big benching, mm-hmm. um, April Delmore Shoemaker, 903. Okay. Doris Simmons, Louis Simmons' wife, I believe. Nice. 887, and that was all the way back, oh, does it list? Uh, yeah, back in 1990, and still at this time. And then Elaine Scraps mm. Grimwood with an 875, rounding out the top five. Um, also a really well-known lifter at the time. But yeah, Doris Simmons back in 1990. Um, next week, we're going to talk about Ernie Franz. Yeah. And in his book, he's got a bunch of pictures of his wife competing in powerlifting, competing in bodybuilding. Um, so it seems like a thing where you know big-time powerlifters' wives will... Yeah. At least have a run competing in powerlifting, if not, you know, maybe and, as and long th- as they're significant other. And I think to go, go way throwback, I, th- I believe it's in the top 30. Uh, Bill Kazmaier is still in the top 30 and like 20 years after he set his records in the on the men's side. Yeah. I could check through that later. I don't know if I see Kaz in here I'm, or not. Again, I'm almost positive he was in the top. They might have yeah. been in the top 20. Yeah, it would make sense, you know, given his, you know, freakish nature. Yeah, he, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of guys in here. You've got... Mark Jackass Bell at number 24. <laughs> um, you know, at the bottom, you've got Karen Kidder, who we hope to talk to soon. Yeah. 
So a, a lot of well-known lifters in this top 50 all-time. Oh, yeah. yeah I, when I went through it, I know Kaz was in there for sure. I just can't okay. recall what, uh, what number he was. but which is Because, again, you look at how was, he set it back in like 1981. So you're talking how many years later, and he's still in there. Yeah, Bill Kazmaier. There he, he is. He's number 27 with his 1,100 kilo, 24-25 total. There you go. And this was back in 2011, so nine yeah, years so th- ago. So 30 years after he set the record. Right. That's right. great. Um, we have a write-up on the MHP Clash of the Titans Ooh, for just sounds cool. Clash King of the, of the Bench Titans. Five, and this was run by one Sean Catterley, who we mentioned last mm-hmm. week. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Sean Catterley is quite a quite a figure, and it would be interesting to do an episode on him. But He's a figure or character, both. <laughs> um, definitely a character and a figure. Okay. Um, so going back, I first was exposed to Catterley. When he was maybe a, a writer for Monster Muscle, mm-hmm. which back in the early 2000s was kind of the competitor to Powerlifting USA, or maybe a companion. I, don't, I mean, th- there was enough room mm. for a couple magazines. Yeah. Um, I know that Catterley was at one point involved with Bench America. That's mm-hmm. what we talked about him last week. Right. It's, and I found this on his website, which is still there, hardcorepowerlifting.com. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like he does any powerlifting stuff. Now he's a... He's an MMA promoter. So of course, why not? Like last week, you know, I guess powerlifters and promoters go from powerlifting to MMA. Um, but it doesn't look like he's done anything in powerlifting in a long time. Mm-hmm. Back in 06, he did a really odd WPO raw only bench meet. It's interesting. interesting. And that was kind of at the end of the Karen Kidder run of the WPO. Okay. I think it was maybe only a year later. So maybe Karen was just, you know, letting Catterley do this and trying something different. Sure. Um, but he was very much involved See, in Sears. Like bullshit. He was there at the 04 APF Iowa WPO qualifier wow. in Dubuque that Bill Carpenter ran and wow. I was at. Dubuque. And he was, you know, announcing and he was very much involved with the WPO. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there was some falling out he had with Enzer, I believe. And then he hmm. became way, did way. Did he try to make it his own bench shirts? Or? <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> but I, I think there was something to do with sponsorship and he became like mm. as anti gear as anybody could plausibly be to the point where he would troll message boards with fake names mm. against gear and you could always tell fake name the way that he would talk you could always t- or the way he would type you could always tell it was him mm. so this mhp and it was sponsored by mhp um this clash of the titans king of the bench it was done in the shorts and a t-shirt because he said sponsors would rather have that than than a singlet what so yeah this was one of those unsanctioned meets i don't know if it was always counted in the rankings or not um, but Catterley is somebody who, if you've been around powerlifting long enough, you know the name, you know him from the message boards and from mm-hmm. his, you know, infamous, you know, troll posts. I mean, he was the ultimate troll. Um, That's but, saying something because we know some solid trolls. Yeah. Uh, again, I would love to do an episode. I don't know if there's enough there, if I could find out enough, or I don't know that I'd want to interview Catterley. Maybe he's changed. Maybe it would be interesting to interview him and just see. Tell, just tell him I live for all. It'll be fun. Yeah, he, he would like that. <laughs> so let's go on to the top top 100, mm-hmm. top 100, 220. Ooh, thick boys. So we've got uh, Sean Frankel with nice. a 1,060 squat at 220. That's... And Sean Frankel is a guy who was at Big Iron and was super well-known as, you know, arguably one of the best lifters pound for pound all time. Yeah. 875 bench, <sighs> still Sean Frankel. Brandon Cass, who's a guy that I've known for years and years with an 810 deadlift. Sean Frankel, number two, though, with 780. Wow. And then Sean Frankel on top. 
27 15. He would have been just out of the top five then on. Oh, no, the super heavyweight, so no, it wouldn't have been on there. Right, but this is 220. So you go yeah, back so to he, super heavyweight. The top five ended at 27.05. And he's at 27.15. 27.15. So if he was a super heavyweight on the all-time list, not top 100, on the all-time list, he would have been number five That is on the super heavyweight. That's a heady number right there. That's that's wild. So that's that's how good of a lifter Sean Frankel was. Wow. I, you know, this is just one of those little, I, I saw that as well when I was going through it. Just one of these little interesting things I found here because basically anybody at the old days of Powerlifting USA mm-hmm. could submit the results. I mean, non-sanctioned meets, you know. Gym meets, whatever. So, so how do you know if you paid your sanctioning fee? Right. So there was an FBI Academy bench press in Quantica, Virginia. And there's like, let's Is see. Quantico, eh, Virginia? About maybe 12 lifters here. Raw bench, I'm assuming. It doesn't say a raw. If, if Donnie Brasco isn't listing, I don't give a shit. Yeah. So it, I just thought it was interesting that, that the FBI <laughs> Academy had a bench press meet in yep. Powerlifting USA. That just kind of cracks me up. That is That is funny. You know, there's like there's like that one guy like who just send it to here because it, it'll it'll yeah, show we'll, us all. We'll put together we'll put together a bench meet. Don't yeah, worry, it, it, the, the higher ups would never have a problem with that. Yeah, and anybody who you know potentially goes undercover sometime in their career, yeah, great to have your name in a magazine. Yeah, jeez, uh, not that anyone else other than us is looking at June 2011 FBI magazines. Man, you don't know, right? And here, if you've never seen it, here's the back of Powerlifting USA. There it is. There's the Enzer Power Shoe. This was literally on the back of every Powerlifting USA for probably as long as I was a subscriber. Uh, subscriber. So, you know, 15 years plus. Yeah. And you couldn't even get the shoe, I think, by the time that this one came out. It's like they'd have it on the back, but it's like they just had printed so many of them. Yeah. Uh, Which is interesting. It, but it wasn't available. Why, like, why would they have so many back jackets printed, but then the fronts are, are you know, obviously changed every single issue? I, I don't know, but they don't sell this shoe, and it's actually a, a good-looking shoe. It's flat, which a mm-hmm. lot of people like, unlike the current shoe they sell has a heel. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, but this is literally on the back of every part of the looks like a Velcro that, truck with the Enzo logo. Uh, it's a little bit more solid. Okay. It's more like a – like you've ever seen my Ricky Dell Crane shoes. Yep. It, they're like yep. those, but without a heel. Gotcha. So Gotcha. Anyways, let's move on mm-hmm. to the origins of the monolift. Dun, dun, dun. So this is one that I've been wanting to do again for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back to a powerliftingwatch.com, which if you're not familiar, mm-hmm. uh, back in around this time uh, when we we're talking about this probably if you say, you know, in kind of the, the early to mid 2010s, mm-hmm. before social media was, you know, kind of ingrained in everybody and the way that everybody communicated mm-hmm. uh, most powerlifting news especially when powerlifting you say went out of business you know we talked about it was in 2012 mm-hmm. powerliftingwatch.com became that news source for powerlifting right um back in 07 uh paul kelso who's a who's a guy who if you've ever seen that powerlifting timeline poster that Inzer sells and mm-hmm. sold in a couple, I'd actually like to buy it. That would be a good thing to put behind. Yeah, us. That'd, be, that'd be dope. Um, he has a poster of the powerlifting timeline, mm-hmm. and he had made a post on a message board that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, powerlifting watch still there, and he had talked about you know it sounds like the the monolift was around even before we remember because he had said I I remember it being used in '93, and then someone else posted oh I remember seeing it being used in '92. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that. And I don't know how she came to this, but the wife of the inventor of the monolift, mm-hmm. Mary Lou, quote Madden, I don't know if she changed her last name or at, not. At former Miss Matt, Mrs. Madden. Yeah, it was like for it's like her her it, her handle was former Miss Madden. Yeah. 
she had one of the longest internet posts I've ever seen. It's like a novel. And it, I, it really is. And I actually, back in this like time, in, 0- internet in 07, I actually copied and pasted that and put it in a document. Mm-hmm. I still have it saved on my computer. I was digital, able to, digital hoarder kids. I was able to find this post still on the internet, but I have a copy and paste you know, version of it saved on my computer because I was like, there's just so much history in this one post. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is that this particular powerlifting.com post mm-hmm. is one of our references. And so some of this information has been at least cor- corroborated. You know, I don't know that I have everything that happened. So we're going to take a lot of what she says at face value. Yeah, I think we kind of have to because there's, there's just not a lot of people that can, you know, substantiate any way to deny it. Most of and, what and most haven't. Most of what she says matches up with other things that I've heard from other people. Mm-hmm. We'll just put it that way. Yeah. Um, I did find, and this one was very hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the original U.S. patent, and I think I have it uh, numbered correctly this time. I believe, I believe so. Nine, or excuse me, geez, if I could say it right, <laughs> four comma nine two eight comma nine six one. If you wanted to look it up, four comma nine two eight comma nine six one. And it is listed. There it is, right there. You can you can weightlifting apparatus, and that's why I couldn't find it. Monolift is nowhere in this in this patent. It's interesting that they they didn't name it. They just wanted to make sure that nobody. And I think that makes sense because you're building a patent. You don't necessarily want the name patented as well. You want the actual like device. Well, sometimes uh, there are patents in my search that mm. have a company that holds the patent, as sure. opposed to this one was held by an individual. Sure. Um. And you made the note it looks yeah. like a torture device. It picture. does, man. Like, you're looking at this thing. It's like, I could see how you would basically hang somebody from this thing and, like, do terrible things to them. Yeah. And, and it's funny. The, the we'll, we'll post a picture eventually yep. of the monolith bench we have in our gym mm-hmm. as well as the original patent with the monolith bench, you know, diagram. And they mm-hmm. look almost identical. They, they, they do. It was And it was interesting because as, as you explained this to me when we ta- talked about doing this episode, this was a few weeks ago. And you made mention that it was originally designed for the bench. And I, I remember looking at you like, the hell are you talking about? And Because we happened to be standing right next to it. And you just slapped it on the, uh, on the hood and like, yeah, right here. Yeah, we, we have it. Jason Patrick, former Franz lifter, mm-hmm. um, bought it from Ernie Franz, didn't really have a use for it, so brought it here. So we have one of those original monolith yeah. benches. So, that, I mean, that thing's got some history on it. Like, that's, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, awesome. it's, uh, I, it's probably 30 plus years old or wow. more. Wow. So uh, we also looked up the Pennsylvania state government business records, mm-hmm. um, which still lift the, list the monolith corporation, which we'll go into yep. as active. So it, it could still be. Now, I'm sure they haven't paid their fee or whatever in many years, but it was never like dissolved, at least according to the PA governmental right. records. Right. So pre-monolith, you know, there there was a few different things that kind of happened. Yeah, it was interesting last night when I was talking to Dr. Fred. You know, he actually mentioned who's been around a long time. He, he has been. His first meet was in 1981. I made sure to mention on that podcast uh, that I was not born yet. I was born the next year. <clears throat> I was born in '83. Yep. So, so the you know there was ER racks and and the stands basically that were being used. And he talked about like then they were basically being fabbed like you know by whomever had the, uh, a welding torch. So they were standing on tire rims. You had to walk around that to actually get out of the mud. Well, it wasn't the ER rack again is a brand name. Okay. But the ER style rack, yes. Yes, ER style rack. And so I remember, you know, having seen lots of uh, old grainy videos of people, you know, squatting back in the day and even seeing people that use the ER style. Now, like, 
in my head, that would have been the first thing to come to mind is how can we make this safer? Because this thing just looks like a disaster waiting to happen. And especially when it was just a stand with a little, uh, you know, base at the bottom. Like that is just a disaster. Yeah. Uh, we have some old school Ernie Franz squat mm-hmm. stands that he made that have individual hydraulic checks. So the ERX, they're the ones that kind of have the, the leverage mm-hmm. action, which if you know how to use can be really, really quick. It's like what we have on our bench. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's single. You know, it's single pivot as opposed to double pivot like sure. the one on the FTS bench, um, which is superior. Superior bench. Uh, but those it's, ER, it's elite. But uh, some of those old squat stands did have hydraulic mm-hmm. on them like the monolift has. But it would be individual hydraulic, right. you know, uh, bottled, bottle jacks, right. which sometimes were really high mm-hmm. because they had to move physically move that squat rack up and down mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, what we're going to talk about with the monolift squat rack. Right. So origins, and this is a lot of this is according to Mary Lou quote Madden, um, former Mrs. Madden, former Mrs. Madden. So let's go back to August 1975, which is when Mary Lou said that her and Ray Madden, mm-hmm. Ray Madden, the inventor of the monolift and monolith bench and monolith squat rack. Mm-hmm. Um, she said that he had designed a quote self spotting device bench. Mm-hmm. And this was basically just something that he wanted to use in his own garage. It was something for him. Mm-hmm. It was something for him to be able to lift by himself. Okay. And when we post a video, and maybe I'll even put up a, or a picture, or maybe I'll even put up a video um, of what the original monolith bench is like, mm-hmm. it makes total sense because, and people, if you've seen the rogue monolith hooks yeah. or the Titan monolith hooks. They're very similar to this. They're almost the identical function of what this original monolith bench had. Yeah. Oh, the, fu- the function is identical. And it looks almost identical. Yeah. And it was basically swinging hooks mm-hmm. that once you lifted up swing the bar, <laughs> once you lifted up the bar, the hooks were designed to swing back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was basically something that he used for himself. He didn't ever think about, you know, uh, patenting it or selling, selling it yeah. or making it or manufacturing it. He was an airline pilot, which I'm sure was, you know, maybe not. Something that he made a million dollars in, but it was something that was at least, you know, it's a, it's a good career path. Yeah, he, lucrative and to a point. And it, it just, it was necessity, as tends to be, was the mother of invention. Yeah, and, you know, an airline pilot, you're going to be gone a lot. So mm-hmm. he said he had limited time. He didn't really want any training partners in his garage. Right. Um, and so back in August 1975, so that it was, she said it was already there. And so we don't know, because Ray has since passed. Right. Ray Madden has passed, we found out. Um, but back in that day when she met him, he'd already designed at least the bench. Mm-hmm. And one of Ray's quote proteges said he was going to take the idea and patent it and sell it. Okay. And then Mary Lou said, well, once he heard that, he said, well, I, you know, this is my idea. It's my invention. Yeah. You know, I deserve to have the patent. So it was, she said it was like a race to the patent office wow. to see who could patent it first. Cause in patent law, Howard Penrose would tell you that it's, it's basically whoever files first. Right. Um, and it's not always who invented it first. Right. Um, you know, there's many stories of that in invention. Tesla and Edison. Yeah, no doubt. That's a big one. So he, you know, then went to patent it, protect it. So mm-hmm. he applied for the patent on September 30th, 1988. So a full 13 years after wow. Mary Lou said she had seen it. So uh, he might have designed a version of this bench. I don't know, 72, 73, 74 at least. Yeah, it's it's crazy because you think about if he if they if she had it or they had it in August seventy five, 
you think about fabbing takes, you know, a couple of months. If he's an airline pilot, I mean, he could have been, yeah, a couple of years. So this thing could have been, yeah, the early 70s. Is when he at least had the idea and concept of it. Now, again, yeah, what we're talking about right now, what's in the patent is the bench. Yes. All we're talking about right now is a bench. The Correct. monolift that we know, the patent, everything, it started with the monolift bench. Yep. That's all he had right now. See how the sport evolves, kids? So then on May 29th, 1990, mm-hmm. it was finally accepted. So a full 15 years after Mary Lou Madden said she had seen it. So, quote, this is straight from the patent. Mm-hmm. A weightlifting apparatus for holding a barbell for a regular bench press is pivotally attached to the top so that the point will move through an arc when the hook is pivoted, said arc created when lifter moves a barbell. Mm-hmm. And really, and the rest, you know, kind of goes into a little bit more, I would say, self-evident details. Those are really like the the key points that makes it unique was basically that pivoting arced mm-hmm. hook. And that's right. what the the patent, you know, text and design schematics lay out. Right. Um, and the designs are totally around a self-spotting bench. There is also a lot of talk, and, and again, I'll post pictures and maybe videos of the original monolith bench, there's a lot on on the the safeties. We, mm-hmm. we would call them now built into the monolith. It's basically the monolith bench was basically a little mini power rack, yeah. a bench power rack. And some companies sell that now. They sell like, you know, like a half power rack mm-hmm. um, with a bench built. And that's essentially his doesn't, the rack doesn't extend throughout the whole pad. It's basically just, right. you know, a mini power rack surrounding where the head and shoulders of the lifter would be. Um, but you've got adjustable... Uh, safeties for, quote, adjustable lockout bar for mm-hmm. lockout exercises. Mm-hmm. Um, and then behind that, there's basically face savers that were set at a point where if you threw the bar back and missed those pivoting hooks, mm-hmm. it would come back and hit, you know, those safeties and not run to your head. And that's yes. what we call them now our face savers. I'm sure that language does not appear in his patent. Yeah, I'm sure that was probably some vernacular that was just coined somewhere else. Yeah, face savers and safeties weren't really in there. He talks about adjustable lockout bars. Mm-hmm. He also has a lot of discussion on a mechanical way to change the rack heights and the pin heights. Hmm. And I don't think that ever came to fruition as far as I know. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that later in years, Ernie Franz would create a monolith squat rack or a monolith style squat rack, Mm -hmm. which would have totally hydraulic. I think I've told this story before where, you know, Barzee and Vizier called it like the Terminator monolith (laughs) where like literally everything on it was controlled by like a monolith uh, or a a hydraulic like generator, like electrical generator that he would turn on. It was like, he'd come in and he'd turn it on. And there was was giant T5000 squat rack. There was giant hydraulic, you know, pistons, and you could adjust the monolift in and out, up and down, you know, up and down height, and then the hooks going out and in, all from hydraulics. We could have called it Legatron. And so I'm, you know, this is back in the days when you basically had two crews at Franz Gym because there was two original monolith brand monoliths. Right. You had the heavy crew where you had to squat like over 800, and there was maybe be six to eight of them, and then there was everybody else, which was Jackie and I. Yeah, and there would be days on that light rack when we would end up with like fifteen plus people squatting, Jeepers. and it was a day when like I just wanted to get fucking going, <laughs> and so I'm like, you know what, fuck this, let's go in the middle monolift, which was this Ernie creation all hydraulic monolift, and you could face reverse or regular with this one that had hooks on both sides. Oh, so you could go both ways. It could definitely go both ways. Hey. 
And I stood up with about 500. Mm -hmm. Um, I just put my squat suit on and the monolift arms go out really slow. And in the meantime, Ernie comes by, sees how slow it's moving, comes and tightens some kind of knob. And then when Jackie, and it was like, it was like a lever. So Jackie just, Jackie just pulled the lever and bang. (laughs) And it didn't quite, but it, Almost knocked me over with 500 on oh it. He's like, gosh. oh, yeah, you know, I saw how slow that was moving. I thought I'd, you know, speed it up a little bit for you. I'm like, you could have said something to Jackie, Ernie. <laughs> so Barzi and Vaziri nicknamed that the Terminator Monolith. And that Terminator. might still be somewhere in Ernie Franz's, like, storage unit somewhere. Dude, if we if, if that is, oh, man, that, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in that one because that's. And we oh. could at least go take some videos and pictures of it. Yeah. So anyways, um. The designs in the patent look identical, mm-hmm. almost identical, with the exception of that mechanical changing to the monolith bench that is still in our gym. We mm-hmm. talked about that Jason Patrick gave us. That used to be at Franz Gym. Right. Um, and Mary Lou talks about how Ray came up with the name Monolift hmm. for their company. So the name Monolift is not it's not really the squat rack or the bench. He called it the self-spotting bench. Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually it was called the monolith squat rack, but it was the monolith corporation. It's almost like Kleenex or, right. or Band-Aid, you know, instead of yep. tissue paper and bandage. Right. You know, the brand name became the item. And now the brand name in this case is Dysfunct. Um, what's ironic, though, is that the monolith corporation was founded September 11th, 1987. Conspiracy. The patent wasn't even filed until 1988. So he at least had the idea for the company yeah. and for the patent prior to him applying for the patent. Interesting. And Ray and Mary Lou Madden, they're listed as treasurer and president mm-hmm. in Beaver, Pennsylvania. And, you know, then Mary Lou, I mean, and again, this is most of this adds up with from what I've been told from others. Ernie Franz, who was around back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I got some input from Rich Peters from NASA Powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Not NASA, the... Yeah. The, the rocket organization. Not, not the Space Force. Yeah, not the not Space Force. <laughs> Which, by the way, there is a Netflix miniseries coming out starring Steve Carell called Space Force. That is interesting. It's hilarious. So, you know, initially, uh, at the time, uh, the, really the main way to advertise something like this, especially something powerlifting specific, would have been Powerlifting USA. And Mary Lou said Makes the, sense. the first thing that they did was to advertise in Powerlifting USA. And we'll go through all this, but you know, eventually the monolith squat, the monolith bench, mm-hmm. turned into these quote self-spotting squat rack. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said that you know initially sales were very slow, and you know you got this brand new, it, 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 especially you think about like those old school benches, right? Um, and squat racks, and some of those I saw in the Ernie Franz book we're we're going to cover next week, right? You know, some of these old school benches. If you compare those. To this bench out here, it would have seemed really, really weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And she said sales were very slow. Him and his son were fabricating them, it sounds like, themselves. Wow. And, but the people who bought it, you know, just wrote back to them and said they loved it. Hmm. Um, especially if you work out by yourself. The monolith bench, or, you know, if you've seen people online use those rogue mono hooks in yep. their, the rogue rack or the Titan ones. I don't think they're as good. I would, I would go with the, the rogue ones. Um, superior, <laughs> but it is something that makes sense, especially for benching by yourself. You don't have someone to give you a handoff. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, it, it made sense. The evolution was okay. The monolith bench is here. The self-spotting bench. Mm-hmm. Let's create the self-spotting squat rack, which is ironic because you really can't 
effectively use a monolith without at least one other person running the rack. You can kind right. of, you, you can unlatch it. And if, if it's set up properly, um, today when I was doing my speed squats, <laughs> I had set it up where I, you know, just could stand up and it would go back and then you'd lean forward into the rack. You can do it, but. Well, you could just attach it to Alexa and see, you know, Alexa pull the, pull the handle. And, uh, yeah, that's about what my children would think you could do. I have had my <laughs> children, I, I have had Jacob do the monolith arm before. There's a video of him like two years ago doing that. Nice. Um, but it, it, we didn't talk about a self-spotting squat rack. Actually, if you look in that, the, the, the new version of Ernie Franz's book, mm-hmm. um, and maybe the old one, I haven't looked at that in a little bit, but if you look at some of those old monoliths, it has these giant table, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I want to call them safeties, but they were basically spotter platforms that were adjustable. Oh, and, and, and so instead of the bar hitting, you know, on a traditional squat rack, the bar will hit the safeties. Right. Or some now you'd have like chains or straps, or, yeah. straps or whatever. In this case, the plates were actually hitting that platform. So if you've seen the setup that like Blaine uh, Sumner has, Blaine Sumner has, yep. it's essentially the same thing, but they were adjustable and they fit right over the top of the monolith legs, and they, they fit you know almost like a puzzle piece right oh, on top. Oh, gotcha. Of them. Okay, okay. Uh, and of the original monoliths. Interesting. So when did you know this monolith squat rack come into being? Because mm-hmm. we've had the monolith bench around 1988, right? Um, and it sounds like you know sales were initially pretty slow, and the monolith bench really, really never got widespread adoption. Well, there, there were a few things going on with that too, like just some of like the original designs and some of the original feedback, like with, uh, and I think that was one of the things that really just didn't uh, work very well for the the bench. Yeah, I mean, I think the monolith bench does work well for its original intended purpose, which mm-hmm. is as a self-spotting bench. If you're working out by yourself and you don't want to have to take the hand off out yourself, if you just want to have to press up the arm swing back, it does make sense. Okay. And I think it works, and I've used it by myself well. I think it works better than taking the bar out yourself. Okay. Um, and then you've got those adjustable safeties, which, again, a traditional bench, our, our benches do, but right. a traditional bench at that time did not have any safeties. And so if you if you, if you fail, uh, you're you're in bad shape. You go learn today. But they did try to use the monolith bench. I was at uh, 2002 mm-hmm. AAPF Nationals, which is a whole other story in itself, in uh, uh, Pensacola, Florida, that Les Kramer, a.k.a. Les Scammer, ran. Oh, that was the one with the infamous, uh, you know, pee tests where oh, you peed yeah, on a yeah, stick yeah. Yeah. that all got thrown in the garbage. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> he had a monolith bench. In the, and I was like, man, why does nobody use this? And he wrote about it in his article that he put in Palace from USA. And he was saying, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, this is this is another version of the monolith. We call it the baby monolith. And come to find out later that it had always been around. In fact, it was around before the squat rack. Right, right. So Rich Peters is an interesting individual mm-hmm. and one that we can maybe spend more time on another time. But he was originally a USPF meet director, going okay. back to some of our old episodes, um, the AAU went to the USPF, which mm-hmm. was the old, basically the only powerlifting organization. Around 1990, he left the USPF mm-hmm. and formed NASA, Natural Athlete Strength Association. So, Not National Aeronautical and Space Association. Yes, and actually his website is nasasports.com. Ah, well, so, well done, sir. Yeah. It, it, it's an interesting organization. Um, there is There are some, I would say, cult-like features to them at times. Um, actually, care, care to elaborate? If you're part of, it, it's almost kind of like with the IPF, 
but because it's smaller and more niche. Mm-hmm. Whereas like if you're within our group, we like you. And if you're out of our group or you leave the group, then, you know. You're just persona non grata. Right. Interesting. Uh, I did one NASA meet, and mm-hmm. we've talked about this before. They started the meet with a curl before, oh, yeah, before yeah, squats. Yeah, yeah. Because at that time, um, there was no raw powerlifting, at least in NASA, but they had raw power sports. And it was a separate, completely separate division where you did curl, bench, deadlift. So the squat was replaced with a curl. Whatever. Uh, interesting. But, you know, I, I will say, I mean, Rich Peters has been around as a meat director since the mid-80s, still running meats. He figure, is, figure something out. Yeah. I mean, he, he has a following. He uh, he runs meets in areas which don't always get served by the big federations. You know, gotcha. I, at one point I was going to do a meet, a NASA meet. It didn't ever work out timing or training wise. I was going to do one in Amarillo, Texas, which was Ew. the closest meet I could find to my grandparents because it had been a goal of mine to do a meet that my grandfather could come watch me lift at. Gotcha. And it just never worked out. Too bad. I wish I would have done it. I wish I would have just gone and done low numbers or whatever. Sure. But. Uh, I ended up doing just a local NASA meet and did single ply bench and deadlifts. So bullshit, basically. Yeah, single ply is bullshit. The meet was bullshit. I <laughs> talked about this before. Poor Mara Sternberg was announcing, running, you know, running the cards, uh, doing the scoring, taking attempts, and so my wife, who's supposed to be helping me, ended up helping Marish in the table, unpaid, by the way. Mm. Uh, this was at the old Leaning Tower. Oh, you you said you guys are kind of by the Leaning Tower wine. Well, well, Nick works there. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Yeah. The yeah. Leading Tower YMCA, which was a home to many powerlifting meets. And my, my original coach actually used to train there and oh. told me about this, the culture that was there. It was yeah, incredible. it was one of the original powerlifting gyms outside of Franz Gym. They had one of the original monoliths. Mm-hmm. Monoliths. Which I found out the Y threw that away. They didn't throw it away. It's at Barbell Compound. It is at Barbell Compound? Yeah. Because that was like, they were telling Nicole, was like, yeah, we got rid of that thing. We just tossed it. They did get rid of it. It wasn't owned by the, by the Leading Tower Y. It's one of those like where... Members had bought it and placed it there. Um, I can't think of his name, but there was a big-time APF guy that trained at the Leaning Tower Y that put a bunch of money towards it. Mm. They had some you know, IPF-style um, squat jacks there. They had a hydraulic-adjusted mm. bench, you know, a, a hydraulic-height-adjusted bench, gotcha. which was interesting. But, yeah, they used to run a lot of meets at the Leaning Tower Y. Um, that's where I did my NASA meet. So, anyways, we're going off on yeah, a tangent. That's, that's way off there. Rich Peters and NASA is a whole real story in and of itself. But uh, I asked Peters because I knew people had said that he was kind of involved in the original, you know, design of the monolift. Mm-hmm. And this is from him. And I, I have no reason not to believe him because other people have, you know, said basically the same thing. Peter says the first monolift squat rack was uh, used to meet the head in Hagerstown, Maryland. Okay. And I believe Peters is from Oklahoma. Okay. He's not from Maryland. I can tell you that. Uh, but... Maryland, Hagerstown, Maryland is about three hours from Beaver, Pennsylvania, where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Maddens were, right. the, the model of corporations. So not terribly far away. Uh, he said the first hydraulic uh, model of squat rack had the hydraulic shack in the middle. It's, it's hard to imagine exactly how that would work. Yeah. You know, I had a monolift from Ernie Franz that he made for me where the hydraulic jack, instead of being a short one, was a long one that actually pushed up the height hmm. um, as opposed to the way that the monoliths now, it basically pulls it down. Right. Pulls down the back to move up the top. Right. Uh, so this original one, I'm assuming... Science, physics. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure even how that... I'd love to see a video or a picture of that. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine how that thing works right now. Like, 
Yeah. Well, and there are like I think it was Texas Strength Systems used to sell a monolift that had a monolift jack on each side of it, Ugh. as opposed to one hydraulic jack on the back, mm-hmm. um, which also seems equally as yes, yeah, so equally it, difficult and right. Silly. If you don't have two people jacking it at the same time, hey. it would uh, it would you know lead to some unevenness on the monolift. Yeah. But uh, Peter said that they had one in the warm up room at this meet. And it was so unstable that it was using it causing lifters to lose their balance. Right. And it was Peter said it was his idea. Now maybe it was a you know collaboration between him and Madden, where they decided to move the hydraulic jack to the side, mm-hmm. and which you know that same design is basically used now, just well, about every basically model. universally. Yeah. Yeah. The, the same design that that Ray Madden and I guess with some input from Rich Peters came up with. You know, and this would have been circa we'll say at least 1992. Okay. It was when the monolith squat rack. Peter didn't give me a timeline. He didn't seem like he wanted to like go into a long soliloquy about this. He gave me very short. He, cons- I mean, he wasn't. He did, that. He, he did email me back, and it, they weren't, you know. He was polite. But yeah, was, he was very polite. It just he didn't elaborate very right, much. Right. He didn't elaborate. So I didn't want to push him too much and get him pissed off at me. Sure. Uh, but he said, you know, he showed Madden or recommended that he move the hydraulic jack to the side. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen how a monolith works, the jack pumps up. And by doing that, it essentially uses leverage to pull the back down mm-hmm. to move the top of the monolith up to change the rack height. And when he did that, he came back to the neck ha- the next Hagerstown meet. And again, this is somewhere prior to, we'll say the spring of 1992. Mm-hmm. And worked really well. Peter says he has the original monolith squat rack at his gym still. Yeah, when when we were texting about this, I'm like, man, that would be so cool to have a picture of that. Maybe I'll email Peter's back and say, <laughs> could you send, because he takes a lot of pictures of his meets. Yeah. Um, You know, we talked about, like, guys like Daryl Latch. And Peter's is similar to Daryl Latch, not in the way that, you know, his meets are backyard meets with one judge that's also the announcer, like oh, Daryl Latch SLP meets, Sunlight Power. But Peters is the same like SLP in that he will serve, you know, smaller, you know, rural areas that wouldn't always have powerlifting meets. Again, like Amarillo, Texas or Lubbock, Texas, very right. small, Ugh, you know, gross. small communities. <laughs> so have I ever told you about how I used to have to get to my grandparents' house? No. So they, my mom grew up in Clovis, New Mexico, which... If, oh, really? Yeah. Which if you look oh. at New Mexico, it's basically like... Yeah, it's, it's on like the here. border, yeah. It's kind of like the far eastern border of New Mexico, you know, about, uh, we'll say, an hour and a half from Texas, smack dab in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. People would ask me, oh, you know, where well, are you? Yeah, West Texas is about as middle of nowhere as you can get. You know, people would say, oh, where are you going for New Year's? Oh, yeah, I'm going to New Year's to visit my grandparents in New Mexico. Oh, I heard New Mexico is so nice. I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not not nice, but. Parts of Albuquerque are nice. People think like Santa Fe, Albuquerque. Albuquerque is a shithole. Well, I, they're shopping and stuff there. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. Nonetheless, people say, oh, I heard, you know, the mountains and stuff in New Mexico are really nice. I'm like, oh, there, there's no mountains in Clovis. No, no. Clovis is about as flat as, as yeah. where we are here. And it's actually a lot of farming, just like there yeah. are here. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. All the farming is circular because of irrigation. So you'll have this, like, long sprinkler that's in a pivot, and mm-hmm. it will go around this way. So you have these sections of the farmland that are kind of unused, and there's this circular farm plot but to get to clovis you'd have to either fly from dallas to amarillo or lubbock and Mm -hmm. then drive two hours to clovis or you'd have to fly direct to albuquerque and drive four hours to clovis those are the type of areas where nasa would run meets 
What was this? Albuquerque does have Iron Soul Gym. That's a great spot. So okay, Casey Eric Iron Soul ever listens to this. So according to many uh, reports, 1992 APF Teenage Junior Master Nationals in Columbus, Ohio. Again, Teenage about, Junior Master Nationals. That's how APF used to run their two national meets. Got so it, there got was. It, got it. Senior Nationals. We've no, no, talked no, about. Got it, got it. Because when you ran it all together, I'm like, that's like saying you're the Submasters Classic Raw <laughs> bench deadlifts only. APF Teenage, comma, Junior, comma, Master Nationals. Got it. Even back in those days, they split up the national meets. Mm. And so, again, about three hours from Beaver, Pennsylvania, where the Maddens and Monolith Corporation were out of. Right. And that's the first time most people say they remember seeing the Monolith Squat Rack. So the APF was one of the early adopters, along with NASA. And you know who one of the other early adopters of the Monolith was? Uh, yeah, I do. The ADFPA became... USAPL. US Apple Kids. In fact, if you look at if you look up the video I feel of like this is like great gotcha journalism right here. You <laughs> <laughs> you guys used to use the monolith. Uh <laughs> well if you look up the video of Mark Henry, yeah. who who lifted and I believe at that point it was an ADFPA meet, which is interesting. Yeah. We'll just say. I mean, I guess yeah. he lifted in the Olympics as well. He was do he is one of, if not the one of the greatest strength athletes of all time. No he doubt. No doubt. Uh, Mark Henry, if you look at his uh, big 903 deadlift, mm-hmm. which still stands as one of the greatest deadlifts of all time, mm-hmm. and for a guy who barely powerlifted competitively for yeah, very he long. Was, he was fucking around with it. Yeah, right. It definitely. Uh, he lifted an ADFPA meet, and they used a monolift in that meet. I think he walked it out, if I'm not mistaken. I'll look up that video. Ray, but, Ray Williams walks his monolith out. <laughs> well, yeah, he used the monolith to train on and yeah. talks about how it saved his ass a couple times. <laughs> yeah, just recently, too. Yeah, no, I saw that. So APF, NASA, and ADFPA, some of the early adopters of the monolith squat rack. Hmm. I wonder why that was. And this is back in 92, so longer than most of you poppy powerlifters have actually been lifting. <laughs> well, longer than some have been alive. Actually, that's what I meant. Yeah. Longer than many of them have been alive. Yeah. So Mary Lou claimed she was kind of the marketeer, the businesswoman, which makes sense. I mean, you've got Ray, who's kind of the the brains of the operation designing this monolith squat rack, designing the monolith bench, you know, had the idea going back to the early 70s. Um, here was kind of her, you know, business plan. And, and, and I've heard from numerous people, they remember this. She would, and, and this, this would definitely work now if he did it. Yeah. She would look in Powerlifting USA. She would call up meat directors and basically say, I will bring enough monoliths for the platform and the warm-up room. So probably about three monoliths, I would mm-hmm. guess, two to three. Um, squat racks mm-hmm. in exchange for one hotel room for her and, you know, uh, I guess her and Ray, Ray and, and the son. I think the son would come with him as well. And free booth space. So she said there they would sell apparel, you know, basically T-shirts mm-hmm. that would basically pay their travel expenses, she said. And they would say, we'll just bring it out. We'll set it up. We'll mm-hmm. show you how to use it. We'll put it on the platform, put it in the warm room for free. All we ask for is a hotel room, you know, not a huge expense and mm-hmm. booth space, which... You know, the op- there's an opportunity cost there, but right. but if you have Real, a venue, realistically, that's minimal. That's yeah, realistically, for most meat directors in powerlifting, you always have room for maybe one more booth. Yeah, and they would set up the monoliths. Three, three spots left, kids. <laughs> she would. They would set up the monoliths, and afterwards, they would sell the monoliths either to the lifters or the meat director mm. at a discounted rate because it's, it's already here. It's already here. We'll show you how to take it apart, and you yeah. can just take it home with you. And I think that's where a lot of those original monolith squat racks were sold. And if wow. you, those original monolith squat racks are still around. They were so well made that, again, we're talking 92. Yeah. 
So we're talking now, almost 30 years ago. Yep. Those monolith squat racks are still around. Um, Barzi and Vaziri bought an original from Franz Jim that's in Mon- uh, Monster Garage. Yep, it is. Um, Actually signed by everybody who ever squatted a thousand pounds in it. Wow. Uh, another mon- one of the original models from Franz Jim is at uh, Battlegrounds mm-hmm. in Joliet. Mm-hmm. I tried to buy both of those and was unsuccessful. <laughs> um, a-, a guy that I know, Putt Houston, who actually I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. Um, the gym he trains at in near St. Louis. They have two original model of Scott racks. Oh, wow. And both have the safeties still with them as well. Nice. So these things were incredibly well made. I mean, all the old monolith brand monoliths seemingly are still around. And you don't seriously think about this. Okay, so you you go to a meet, you're 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 Mary Lou and Ray, and you're selling t-shirts. You're you know connecting with people, all kind of stuff. That's a really ingenious way because you, when you think about it, you've got people who are raving about the product, and you've got meat directors with cash in hand. Right. I mean, because like, oh, and especially if you ended up having like maybe in those days. Um, it was the type where people would walk up. You know, yeah. you'd have walk up sales where you'd end up with fifty percent more lifters than pre registered. Right, right, right there at the meet. And so, if you had a great day of lifters, say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and buy one of those monoliths. Maybe yeah. buy a couple of them. Exactly. It is. It's an ingenious business plan because I, you have this. It's almost like when we've talked about with powerlifting gear with Inzer. I talked to one of their reps, and he said one of the issues with our product is that people don't know how to use it. Yep. And so you're advertising in Powerlifting USA, this new monolith squat rack. It looks so much vastly different. I mean, even now, yeah. if people come in this gym for our beginners meets and they look at a monolith and they're just they're just afraid because oh, they, I, don't, they don't they don't have any idea how it works or, you know, how to use it or how to adjust it. It just looks intimidating. The first time I saw a monolith was when they said Robert Bain bar is loaded at my first meet. Didn't you check your rack height beforehand? Uh, or no? No, I would have, yeah. But, I mean, that's the, that was my first experience with the monolith. Sure, was, like squatting out of it. Well, squatting yeah, out me of too. it I mean, my, my very first meet. My first meet, I fell back. Yeah. And, and had the on my first squat, had the spotters had to grab me because, you know, backing out of the monolith was so, you know, threw me off balance-wise. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, it's ingenious because now you've got all these lifters, especially a meet like, you know, APF Teenage Junior Master Nationals. Yeah. This is at a time when there's maybe – We'll say four powerlifting federations, mm-hmm. so way less than now. There's probably USPF, NASA, ADFPA, and APF. That's it. That powerlifting isn't as big either, but right. you know, a, a meet like Teenage Junior Master Nationals would have been, especially in Columbus, would have been well attended. Yeah, would have been well attended. Would have had great coverage in powerlifting USA. So you're now you're seeing this big monolift and saying, "Hey, you know, we'll come out to your meet. We'll we'll because as a meet director, I can tell you one of the things I hate." More than anything in the world is moving the fucking is model. moving monoliths and taking them apart and putting them back together sucks. Um, so if somebody's offering to do that for you, in fact, I was thinking about a deal I used to have with a guy that owned one of my old monoliths, mm-hmm. and the deal basically was I'll give you the monolith. We okay. had a contract laid out and everything, or agreement. I don't know if contract. Write that term. down, kids. Yeah, agreement. And the deal was I give him the monolith for free. No okay. cash. He just has to bring that monolift out on a yearly basis to three meets that Team Stone and later 2XL Powerlifting would run. Right. It worked for a while. It actually worked for a number of years. Eventually, it got to where, you know, he just wasn't willing to make it work with his schedule. So he had to, he had to buy the monolift from me, which gotcha. is fine. Um, but I bought a second monolift 
so that I could bring those two monoliths and he would bring the third. So one platform meets at that time were all we ran. Right. And they were all, you know, we we were good on monoliths with that. Well, you, you could just buy one after every beat, right? I mean, you guys make, you know, so much money at all these beats. So. Right, right, right. Exactly. L- lifter math. Yeah, lifter math. We <laughs> talked about that with uh, Fahey last week. <laughs> we did. We did. So, you know, it, you sell the monoliths and it starts getting some notoriety. And then, of course, then you start getting the monolith debate, which we'll talk about later. Oh, yeah. Um, Mary Lou spends a lot of her post, and it might be worth reposting that in its full form on uh, my blog. Um, I might do a little article on this and maybe just at the bottom post, here's Mary Lou's original post. I think, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. So people can read it and see exactly what she said. Yep. Um, they had her falling out in a divorce, uh, Mary Lou and Ray Madden. Um, and, uh, and to name the former Mrs. Madden. Yeah. According to Mary Lou, uh, Ray had offers to you know, sell the company, including Paramount Equipment. And I don't I don't know that name doesn't ring a bell with me. No, I don't know. I mean this was mid nineties. Yeah. So I mean I think she said they went out of business around ninety six. So this only was really a company for a few know. years, yeah. I, yeah, I mean they were selling the benches from maybe uh, you know, the patent came into being in nineteen ninety. Maybe they were selling it before mm-hmm. then. But at the very most, maybe eighty eight to ninety five, ninety six. Mm-hmm. And then by then they're out of business. And there's again from that, and then the monolith squat rack didn't even come into being until 92. So in a four-year period, there was monoliths that were made to the point that are still around today. That's that's incredible when you think about it. It's, that kind it's of only fly. a four-year run. Yeah. And wow. That's just, I, I, I'm wrapping my head around that at this point. Like, that's just crazy. If you look at a lot of the NASA meets, if they use a monolith, it's, it would, it would yeah. be a monolith brand monolith. That one from the Leading Tower Y yep. is a monolith brand monolith that's now at um, – uh, is that the one they had to like refurbish or something? Was that the, or is that a different one they had? To? Barbell compound. It could have been. They could have yeah. had to, you know, replace the bolts and the hydraulic jack. I remember there was one that was like. Uh, I Eventually, the hydraulic jacks go out. I mean, this like the whole thing. Like you, were, if you were doing anything over like five hundred pounds, like you were afraid it's going to fall apart. Yeah, uh, I know Ernie Franz used to take his apart. You know, maybe mm-hmm. every three four years, repaint them and then replace sure, the bolts sure. and stuff. Um, so. You know, eventually the Monolith Corporation, according to Ray, mm-hmm. went bankrupt and, you know, they were out of it. Okay. Mary Lou tells a story because there's always been this rumor that Ernie Franz invented the Monolith, which Ernie himself never claimed to have invented the Monolith. Uh, but that was always the rumor because Ernie had always been so closely associated with the Monolith, with the APF, that it was said that Ernie created the Monolith. And there could have been times when Ernie said he helped create the Monolith. Sure. I, as far as I know, he never claimed to have the – he never claimed to be the pure inventor. Right. Mary Lou said Ernie signed up as a distributor and all of a sudden she's getting a call from somebody saying, you know, they're part of the marketing department for the monolith corporation hired by Ernie Franz. Mary Lou, you know, summarily fires Ernie Franz. Uh, yeah. Again, this is according to Mary Lou. Ernie would tell a much different story. Uh, or at least he used to tell a much different story. I'm not sure he remembers all that anymore. That's that's very interesting. <laughs> according to Ernie Franz himself. He held possession of the patent up through its expiration. That's what okay. he claimed. Okay. And this was corroborated by both the actions of Elite FTS mm-hmm. as well as Ricky Del Crane, who said, you know, he was waiting for the patent to run out before he started selling his version of the model, which he's never done. But he said he, he does sell equipment, but he never ended up making and selling a model lift. Right. Um, there's, there was some evidence online that seemed to indicate that, 
the patent was no longer being upheld starting in 96. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was on, you know, a Google search. Google has its own patent history along with the actual U.S. patent website. So there's some evidence that starting in 96, the patent wasn't kept up to date. I don't know exactly what that means if you have to pay a yearly fee. Well, I don't think you have to pay a yearly fee, but I mean, at the end of the day, like the patent basically says, hey, I own the the rights to this. Sure. You can do with it what you want. Sure. No doubt. So like if somebody says, hey, I I made this and it looks exactly like yours, but it's got my name on it. And you can say, okay, and let it ride. That does potentially set a precedent if you decide to go back and sue. But Right, right. Yeah, you either need to show that, hey, the precedent is you have to license the patent from Mm -hmm. me or you can't make it like in the John Enzer case. You're not allowed to make it until the patent's expired. Or you have a general agreement and you just let that keep keep on. But what's interesting about that is that Ernie claimed to have possession of the patent. I'd never seen the patent until I did the research for this. Right, right. Nowhere in the patent, just like the patent from the other week when it talked about, you know, being used for the bench shirt. And who knows? If you hire the right lawyers, you might be able to apply this patent to the squat rack. Sure. Nowhere in this patent does it talk anything about a squat rack. It specifically talks about a bench press, a self-spotting bench. Mm -hmm. Mary Lou said something in her post about, you know, we were clever to say something about, uh, you know, pivoting arms. Mm -hmm. And I looked up whatever term she used in it. Also did not appear in the patent. <laughs> the only thing it really says in the patent was, you know, a pivotally, you know, a, a pivotally attached to the top. And so that when the hook is pivoted, a solid arc is created when yep. the lifter moves a barbell. I guess you know, it doesn't say lifts the barbell, doesn't say like it says moves the barbell, which gives you a lot of latitude. Yeah, uh, but it also says in that language for holding a barbell for a regular bench press. Yeah. Now, again, maybe you could make the argument that what what is unique about that mm-hmm. is that hook. And it, that hook would also apply to a squat rack. A, a good patent lawyer probably could argue that. I think they would. If you had enough money, you could probably have you know sued people that try to create a, mm-hmm. another monolift. Uh, but it never was. And essentially, after the monolift corporation went out of business, mm-hmm. um, soon thereafter, I don't know exactly when, um, when I was around... Ernie Franz was selling and making monoliths. Mm-hmm. They were not, and I love Ernie, but they weren't the same quality as the monolith ones. Um, by the time I got in the sport, Elite FTS was around, and they were right. making monoliths. They right. were the main other manufacturer. I can't think of any big companies other than that. That Does, was, does Westside make one, or do they make one in conjunction with Elite? Westside never made anything. Okay. They would they would outsource. Just like, I mean, to be fair, so does Elite. Right. William Strengths actually manufactures West or Elite FTS's equipment. Right. And William Strength is a big manufacturer. Basically they deal with big colleges, universities, governmental deals. Right. Versus Elite FTS deals with the individual consumer. Right. So, you know, Elite FTS is the customer of William Strength and then all of us are customers of Elite. Now, that being said, Elite comes up with a lot of designs based on, you know, Dave Tate's, you know, Influence encyclopedic knowledge, his genius of equipment design, right, and feedback from lifters. Um, but yeah, uh, what Westside did was they had a manufacturer create their equipment, and then they just branded it, right, with their design. To be Mm -hmm. fair, like now we've we've heard recently that Westside has basically licensed their designs to Rogue, fully licensed, and so I think in the past it was Legend, and there was another company in the middle there. and eventually now it's going to be a rogue that's just going to make all the Westside branded stuff. Got it. So, uh, I, and I wish I'd grabbed that. Even at the time, I thought I should grab this. Got to listen to that voice, man. 
Ernie's had an original monolith advertisement. This was in the early 2000s that I saw mm-hmm. at Franz Gym. I'm going to ask Ernie because he's got a bunch of old stuff. If he, if they still exist, Ernie Franz is the only one who has them. Sure. Um, these original advertisements. I remember because I, I, I wrote in this same Powerlifting Watch post. Eric Stone commented back yeah, in, I saw that. in 2007 when Mary Lou made her post. Fred Hatfield was quoted on the back of that advertisement saying it was a, quote, great advancement in safety. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Fred Hatfield uh, again. Yep. My first monolift I bought was an Ernie Franz made monolift that Putt Houston. Oh, my gosh. Putt, Here we go. Putt Houston is quite like he's kind of like you from other uh, from other organizations because he's been the back spotter. Sure. At a lot of big meets. He's the he's the he's not much of a hype man, but he's definitely a platform manager. Okay. He is just such a character in this sport. I mean, he would be decked out in all Under Armour, like Under Armour everything, like Under Armour. Like, I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> That's all I'm fucking wearing. More Under Armour than you're wearing right now. Like I have shorts on. I have the compression you shorts. You do not have Under Armour shoes on. I do not. I have Puma shoes He'd on. He'd be decked out in like all, and but like really like loud colors. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Decked I, out I've, Under I've Armour stuff. Like that. You know, shades. You always knew it was Putt Houston. So Putt Houston was back in these days. He was also well known on the internet. He mm-hmm. would have been. He posted all the time on Powerlifting Watch sure. and on the message boards. His signature on Powerlifting Watch was now with more bow chicka bow wow. <laughs> Do you remember the axe, uh, the axe commercials? That, yes. Yes. So basically, now with know. more brown chicken brown cow. Right. So wow. Putt Houston. Puts online. He actually no. He, he did not put online. He emailed me and said, "Hey, I'm looking to sell this model. Could you help me?" Because at that time, I was maybe somewhat known on the internet. I had a website. Mm-hmm. He said, "Hey, do you know anybody who wants to buy a model?" And I said, "I think I would like to buy a model." Sure. And so cleared it with the wifey. Sold it to me for fifteen hundred bucks. We drove as as per the usual. We drove my parents' van down to St. Louis. <laughs> but Houston, this house. It's hard to describe. The house was gigantic. I mean, he had like a commercial grade restaurant quality refrigerator in his basement, like his second refrigerator, like a walk-in refrigerator. That is amazing. His dining room had like a dining room table that probably could have seated 30 people. What? I mean, it was the bench on it was huge. His basement was like, you know, the... What do they call it now when men have their own space? Oh, the man cave or whatever? It was like the man cave before the man cave was a thing. What the fuck? He had this monolith in his basement, by the way. Exciting. And eventually decided he didn't need it anymore because the gym he went to had one. Sure. I mean, the size of everything was oversized. I remember Putt Huge. I remember Putt Houston, he did one of my meets, and he ordered a 2XL shirt. Mm -hmm. And he's not that big of a guy. At that time, I think he lifted similar weight class to me, 181, maybe 198. I'm like... Are you sure you want a 2XL? Like, you know, that seems a little big for you. Oh, that's how I do a player. That was his response. <laughs> Is that where you stole the player from? It's from him? Uh, maybe. That might be. Because <laughs> Putt Houston was a well-known guy back when I bought this monolift in. It would have been around 2005. So I, Putt, I need to know. I need to meet this guy. I need to. Gosh, I, it's hard to describe his house. I wish I'd taken. I, I mean, that was before the days of camera phones. Right. I wish I'd taken pictures. Oh, and then he had five kids. I'm pretty sure he was a stay-at-home dad. Um, and did something, but he had five kids and there was probably, this is not an exaggeration. There was 15 kids running around his house. Like the whole neighborhood was at his house. Like, Oh yeah, player. That's just how we do it. That's how we do it here. I got kids everywhere, man. What the hell? Like I have have to find this man now. I don't know that he's on social media anymore because I looked for him. I found his son, 
Putt-Putt Houston. He used to come to all the APF, AAPF putt, national. Putt Houston was it? Oh my. Well, word. that's his son, is Putt Putt Houston. Yeah, it's But what Putt I'm Houston is, gosh, he's such a character. Anyways, we're getting way yeah, off we, tangent. Yeah, we are, we are. But, but Putt Houston, incredible. if anybody knew him back in the day, you'll, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> One of the most unique monoliths ever created, Ernie Franz did for the 2000 combined WPC AWPC Worlds. This was the first reverse monolith. So the structure of the monolith was behind the lifter, which everyone hated when I had mine, and the hooks went out. Yeah. But it had a built-in platform, so it was like a structured platform. Oh, wow. Um, It had built-in lights on the top of the monolith. So it was a huge apparatus. As big as this room. Jesus. It had weight trees built into the side of the monolith that would spin around. So you you could have the heavy ones like you know on either side, and they would spin. You could spin the weight trees to grab them. Built. What could go wrong? Oh it, no, there was nothing wrong. <laughs> now the reverse monolith threw people off. Yeah. Originally, Ernie said it was all operated by a mechanical hydraulics, like the one, so the, the like, like the Terminator. Eventually, we we eliminated that part of it because wow. it was just too much. But he used that at the two thousand uh, Worlds in Vegas, which I was qualified for and supposed to lift at. That apparently was like a week long meet with like five six hundred lifters. Oh wow! Um, and and he, I mean, it was huge. I mean, the, the biggest monolith you've ever seen in your life. He eventually sold it. Uh, I did some meets. I think the 05 state meet he did on the third floor of his gym mm-hmm. using that monolith. Um, it was in storage for a while. Uh, but as far as I knew, Ernie never claimed to create the monolith. He just said that you know he helped is all he would say, and right. that he claimed to hold the patent, although. I found no evidence of that. I'm not calling Ernie a liar. Maybe he had. Now maybe he's holding the piece of paper. Yeah, he never enforced I mean, it. Inzer held the lawsuit, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, it, but as far as I could tell, there was I'm nothing. Some kinfo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the patent eventually expires September 30th, 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, Ricky Del Crane had told me years ago that he was waiting for the patent to expire before he sold his own monolith. Okay. Elite FTS used to sell their monolith on their website, and I wanted to go back into the Wayback Machine to find this. Maybe I still will. Yeah. They used to sell their monoliths, quote-unquote monoliths, as the mono-style squat rack. Mono-style mono style squat rack. Because, again, monolith was a brand name. Yeah. Although it, it was not in the patent. There was nothing about monolith in the patent. Right. It was just Ray Madden and the monolith but corporation. A, but if it was a trademarked name, then you couldn't use that, correct? Uh, it might have been. Uh, by that time, it would have been expired because the, the company was out of business by at least right. 96. Right. So that's kind of the history, Bane. And yeah. I think it's an interesting history. The monolith started with the bench. Mm-hmm. Monolith is a brand name. And the monolith squat wrap came second. Well, it was used by almost everybody. And now monolith is a, you know, kind of like a term that everybody in powerlifting would at least know of. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was a company and it wasn't even the first creation of that company. It was the second one. And the first one, eh. now I shouldn't say that nobody uses it because essentially the legacy of the monolith bench Mm -hmm. lives on in those mono style hooks that rogue and other sell. Yes. If you use them for benching or squatting, but essentially which are on back order right now. Yes. We're going to try to get some for our rogue rack. Um, and actually, uh, the the thought process behind the self-spotting monolith bench really lives more on in the legacy of the squat rack with those hooks mm-hmm. versus the monolith squat rack. Correct. Because really, the monolith squat rack, you need at least two people. And in fact, and if you have the spotter platforms, you're okay with just one person riding the rack. Yeah. 
usually I would tell people that, if you're going to use that can go wrong too. Sometimes we see. Oh, that. that's happened to me. Yeah, yeah, I blew my hamstring out trying to help a teammate, Shara Powell. Oof. She fell backwards outside of the spotter, you know, platforms, right, and right. I tore my hamstring trying to reach from the monolift hook you're, to you're grab poor her. hamstrings, man. Yeah, the same hamstring Oof. I tore in the same year. Oof. So uh, that's the history, and I think it's an interesting history. But let's talk about what's the legacy. Well, I mean, I think that people were already thinking about stuff like this uh, well before it really kind of hit the scene, right? I mean, obviously, with and again, we I keep harkening back to the the squat uh, portion of it. Uh, you know, Doc Squat, Fred Hatfield, he basically improvised a mono. Yeah, and this is an infamous story or famous, depending on your 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 take on it. Your take on it, but his first thousand pound squat. Or one of his first thousand pound squat. I'm not sure if it was his first one or not. Um, he had the spotters move the squat racks out of the way mm-hmm. at the 87 Hawaii record breakers. If you watch the video, he actually even after they move the the squat stands out of the way, mm-hmm. the spotters literally it's the two separate ones like the, yep. the Ernie Franz ones I have. They literally lift up the squat racks and walk them back a couple steps. He still takes a couple steps out mm-hmm. afterward. Um, as a result, though, of Fred Hatfield doing this, the USPF IPF changed their rules. He talked. Fred Hatfield used to talk about this. He's passed, <laughs> but afterward, they changed the language in the rule book to state that you had to step back yeah. out of the squat rack as opposed to just remove the bar from the squat racks. Which right. he removed it. He did. He, he just asked the spotters, and I, I, I get it. It's why, splitting hairs. I mean, it is. Well, but I get why. From a meat director's perspective, you don't want every lifter asking the spotters to move the squat racks out of the way. Oh, yeah. It's more opportunity to shit the bed. Um, and actually, if you watch one of his – I think it was his first. I think it was his 1,008 squat where he did that. Mm-hmm. I think his 1,014 squat, which is more – the video is more well-publicized. Yeah. He walks it out. Yeah. Because I think they changed the rules by was, that point. Yeah, it was shorter thereafter, and then he you know, crushes that one too, so – and he doesn't tighten his belt, if you notice. He talked yeah. about – I remember Dr. Squat, Fred Hadfield's website, was one of the first websites that I frequented to learn about powerlifting. Mm-hmm. So he was one of my early influences in powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he used to post quite a bit on his message board. And I remember him talking about how he just forgot to tighten his belt on his 1014 squat. He just said, you know, my abs and my core were so strong that I almost didn't need it, didn't didn't. Didn't affect the lift at all. As, as uh, Double K said, this is my fucking belt. Yeah, and now he's out of the sport from injured back. Well, he's dead. Oh, he's dead? Yeah, he's dead. Oh, okay, but he did injure his back before that, correct? Uh, did he? I mean, uh, still maybe, pulled 900 plus pounds. Maybe so. we're thinking of somebody else. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, the monolith has been around since 1992. We talked about this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, we also talked about that at one point, the gold standard. Wrong. The, the ADFPA, a.k.a. now USAPL, used the monolift. Yeah. And so the fundamental question we talked about, you know, in our... We've done this a few times, actually. Yeah, yeah. We, in our transgenders, lifters, and powerlifting episode, we mm-hmm. kind of broke it down. What's the fundamental question? To me, the fundamental question is, is the walkout part of the squat? And to me, it is not. There is not... Like, you're squatting the weight. You have removed the bar from the rack. You squat down and you stand back up. And as long as the crease of your hip is below the top of your knee, and then you stand back up erect, and everything is in line, you don't, you know, there's no up and down movement, etc. That is a legal squat. The walkout itself, to me, is only a function of having to get away from the racks that are set up. 
So right. it, however it's, those it's, it's technical, go, it's logistical. Right. However those things go away, whether it's somebody moves them, whether it's the monolith uh, apparatus pulls it out, whatever. So to me, the, the walkout is not part. I don't know if you're going to play devil's advocate on this one. but uh, No, because that's been my argument for the 20 years I've been in the sport, arguing mm-hmm. with people on message boards about the monolift. I've always been a big fan of the monolift. I'm probably you know, biased because I've always lifted APF. Mm-hmm. I've always lifted with Ernie Franz. I, as soon as so I used it. It's not biased or you're just uncultured because you won't go to other federations. <laughs> I have. Hey, talked about it. I've lifted AAU, lifted NASA. I've never lifted USAPL um, just because they – by the time I got so, into running meets, they weren't really popular in Chicago. Although I did, I have judged at USAPL meets. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't think the walkout did, is. Did part you of actually it. judge proper depth then? I mean, <laughs> uh, did I ever told you the story about that? No. Okay, so this is a oh, this is a good story. Oh, here we go, kids. This is a high school meet, unsanctioned. That Dennis Brady, who used to be the biggest, one of the biggest USAPL meet directors mm-hmm. um, in the country. And, you know, ran Women's Worlds in the mid-2000s, ran a number of USAPL national meets. He took a long break from running USAPL meets mm-hmm. and a, at one point was running ADFPF, an offshoot of the USAPL meets. Jesus. He's come back now and he runs small USAPL mm-hmm. meets at his gym only. Um, but he used to run big meets. The Viking Open was outside of the Illinois State meet, APF, right. was the biggest local meet in Chicago. And I judged at that meet a number of times. So I had always kind of for free. I never got paid anything, which was fine because I volunteered. I'd always offered at that time, early, mid-2000s, to judge at Dennis Brady's meets. And mm-hmm. he would use me. Um, at that time, the USAPL was less strict on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And basically, he would come sit for me if it was a record attempt. Okay. Uh, he used to run a really popular, unsanctioned high school meet in Chicago. It had 100-plus lifters, two platforms. Wow. But it was judged... It was judged and run mostly by USAPL people, but it was not a USAPL-sanctioned meet. It was unsanctioned. Okay. I mean, they allowed the kids to wear a T-shirt and shorts, so that's how unsanctioned it was. In fact, one of the Lillibridge's very first meets was, I believe, one of these unsanctioned oh. high school meets run by Dennis Brady. Interesting. <laughs> and there was one kid that was actually wearing – I don't know if it was a squat suit or a singlet. I, I don't know. But he was wearing something on his body. Sure. And I remember I gave the kid a white light. And the other side judge, Judy Gedney, who we've talked about mm-hmm. a couple times, has passed, but was a big-time USAPL uh, and eventually ADFPA F IPF judge, mm-hmm. gave it a red light. And she yelled at me after it. That was as parallel as it could be. I'm like, well, I don't know. Hey, you call your side. I call my side. By the way, we're judging kids that are half the time in T-shirt and shorts. Yeah. This one, you could definitively see the crease of his hip, and to me, it got just below the top of his knee. But I remember her screaming at me mad that I gave this kid a white light. And again, this is unsanctioned meat. Over half the kids are wearing shorts, and it's very – now, most of the kids are squatting. They're either really high or they're really deep, so it's, sure. it's easy. But this kid, to me, he just barely broke. And, and my experience back in those days – Which, if you barely break, guess what? That means you right. parallel. It was a legal squat to me. Yeah. Um, Back in those days, when I judged USAPL meets, my perception was that their judging was basically the same on the deadlift. It was basically the same on the bench. The only difference was on squat depth. They wanted squat depth to where sitting in their chair upright like I did there, Mm -hmm. without leaning over, they would be able to definitively see depth. That's basically what I've seen at the few USAPL meets that I've been to. The only difference for a while was that they didn't have the press command. Yeah. And then there was ambiguity on the pause. 
So anyways, there, there's a little side story uh, when I got yelled at by an IPF judge whatever. at a high school meet, unsanctioned. So uh, yeah, to me, the walkout... But, but they're the gold standard case. Yeah, they're the gold standard. Uh, one of the arguments, and I'm giving out the devil's advocate yep. since we agree on the monolift, but right. the, the argument is that it is, quote, more impressive to see somebody walk out of squat first. Is it? Thoughts? No. Do you know what's more <laughs> impressive to me? Is Dave fucking off. Squatting 1273. Hi, gear, drugs, cheater. Three whites, piss off. Hey, if you only get two whites. Uh, to me, it is all you need is two whites. I will say this. It is harder. It is more difficult to walk on a squat first. No doubt about that. Just like it's more difficult to squat the same amount of weight, raw versus single ply, single ply versus multi ply. Sure. That, to me, impressive is subjective. It's not objective. Correct. And so it is objectively more difficult to walk out of squat first. And if the point of this sport is to lift the most weight, why would you intentionally make it more difficult? Right. It's not like gymnastics where yeah. there's you know subjectivity and you're giving people points. You don't oh, get it. Oh, God. Don't get me started on that. Well, and you're not judging the walkout. Like, you, there, is, there is nothing you could do in the walkout that could cause – you to get a red light. Like even if you stumble, right? as long as you eventually settle and stand erect at the beginning of the squat, nothing that happens in the setup of the squat affects the judgment of that squat. Right. It's once you get the squat command. That's when the lift technically starts. Mm -hmm. So if technically the lift starts, when you receive the squat command, how does it matter how you get to that point? I don't believe it does. And is it more impressive to see Blaine Sumner stumble out with 1,100 pounds on his back with at the a army? a bunch of fucking high schools around him? That, to me, is just scary. It's not more impressive. No. No. He is... This is not a knockout point either. In fact, he might be the most impressive lifter in the world right now to me. Maybe only second to Dave Hoff. I would love to see that match up. But Blaine Sumner is, if, if not it, one of... Uh, if not the one of the most impressive lifters I've ever seen in yeah. my time in the sport. Like, to be able to recover from that stumble at the Arnold. I mean, that's and, just. And on 45-pound bar in single-ply gear with. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about the noodle bar, right? All right. these guys talking Jeez. about the deadlift. That's the noodle bar. And, you know, I would say definitively more strict depth judging. It doesn't mean it's right, but definitely more strict. Def I would agree with that. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely impressive. It I would is. rather see him on a squat bar and a monolift, though. I would, too, because, if I, I mean, my whole thing is wanting to see guys who can push the limits of the sport. I think that would, and I think he would give Dave a run for his money, at least in the squat. Right. Uh, one of the other arguments is that the monolift allows for wider stances, which I, I don't know why that's a problem. Now what? Who cares? And it allows for more gear because you don't have to walk it out. Okay. Again, I don't think that's wrong, but I don't think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And that the monolift, because of wider stances and more gear and not walking it out, contributes to depth issues or higher squats being passed. Well, I think those issues are more people having this subjective standard of what, you know, depth is supposed to be. Well, read the rule book. It's a, it's to me it's very clear. It is it doesn't have a a standard of mm -hmm. it has to be this much below. It simply has to be below. Well, and I also think that IPF judges tend towards more preferring close stance squats is close stance squats in their judging because technically a close stance squat will have will will appear to be deeper mm -hmm. because a close stance squat necessi necessitates more forward knee motion and so it's going to be 
a deeper squat. So it's, but, it's a fold. It's not a squat. Right. But when you're seeing the pivot point of the knee travel forward and slightly down, mm-hmm. now the hips have to go further down. So a wide stance squat allows for less knee motion mm-hmm. and more hip motion. So it looks higher. But if we're judging it on the standard of hip crease below the top of the knee, mm-hmm. which is another one of my rants, are we looking at the top of the patella? Because that's not the top of the knee. The patella is a part of the knee. It is not the entire of the knee. And the rule book does not state the top of the patella. It says the top of the knee. To me, it is the top of the leg at the end of at the end of the knee. That's the top of the knee. So that uh, we're getting into other. There's a lot of lot of lot of ranting going on. A lot of rants there, but that's that's just our opinion on. You know, those are the arguments why people don't like the monoliths. Now, the one I can probably empathize. (laughs) The one I can empathize with the most because I've done it so much Mm -hmm. is. The uh, the meat director's perspective. Yeah, moving those things suck. Moving monolith sucks, and there is some uniformity and there is some you know nicety in having one piece of equipment that covers all your needs. That's that's fair. The I, ER I can sti- appreciate that. The ER style rack. Yeah, you know, does provide a bench and a squat rack, fully adjustable, mm-hmm. in and out, accommodates you know high for the squat, low for the bench. Yep. I can appreciate the simplicity. Oh, so the supposed to be high. <laughs> I can appreciate the simplicity of having one piece of equipment that covers both lifts that need a piece of equipment. That, that, that makes the barrier to entry smaller. I do appreciate that. So I appreciate that as a meat director, and monoliths are not easy to move. So mm-hmm. I get it why people don't want to use them. But at the same time, uh, should we be looking for the easiest way no, to provide equipment, or should no. we be looking for the best possible equipment as a meat director? And again. I, I empathize with meat directors because monoliths are expensive, but shoot, yeah. ER racks aren't that much cheaper, really. In fact, in some cases, and the ER trip they usually cause is also pretty expensive. I'm <laughs> <laughs> to say, man. I think Elite FTS makes a version which are not IPF approved, of course. Of course not. I think they make a version that is heavier duty. And if I were going to buy one, which if I had an extra cash laying around, I might. Yeah. I don't certainly don't have any extra cash laying around. Um, this way, to get to twelve hundred dollar check later is fine. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, the other the other argument is that audience viewing is inhibited by the monolith. I also agree with that. I, I do. I if you watch the WPO recording, you know there's six of us, seven of us around the the monolith. That's a challenge for audiences. I get and that. that is where everybody the the one everybody hates the reverse monolith is preferable for audience viewing. In some ways, I almost wish I would have kept the reverse monolith for the WPO. Although. All the WPO lifters would fucking hate it. Oh, they would have gone crazy. They would have fucking hated that model lift. Yeah. More so than those rolling hooks we had at the WPC can Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. They would have hated Because I had the reverse model lift that mm-hmm. Elite FTS made. I think mm-hmm. an excellent model lift. I liked it. Super solid. It was super tall. It looked impressive. It was even harder to move because yes. you could not have put it upright on a uh, a box truck. No. Um, but like, if you look at the pictures and videos from Ernie Franz's 2000 WPC Worlds, the pictures, like, look up Brent Mikesell's okay. squat from the 2000 WPC Worlds. It is a beautiful picture. There's nothing inhibiting the audience viewing of Mikesell's beautiful-looking squat because it was a reverse monolift. The structure was behind the lifter. Mm. So uh, that would be the way to solve it. That's what they did after the 2000 Worlds. It's actually more popular in Europe, outside of the UK, to have those reverse monoliths. So they always do things backwards in Europe. We know that. You're not wrong. <laughs> so I, I, I do get, from a meat director's perspective, I do get those two points. Mm-hmm. Um, makes sense. And the last thing was maybe, you know, why was the monolith bench never adopted? It's just because 
with bench shirts and even with just the heavy weight, it, even with the, the, the hooks right above you, it's still hard to press that out. It's easier if it's directly on top yep. of you. Have you ever seen those breaker benches that some it has like it's a leverage at the bottom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like it, what yep. you're talking about with the Duffin. Yep. But uh, there's some leverage benches which a couple companies have sold, which basically instead of having hooks, the entire upright is pivots. Yep. And you bring the upright out, you lift up, and it's on a, a weight, and the whole upright pivots back, which is also an ingenious design. It is. And actually, I rewatched Duffin's video after I typed this, and he, he actually just has weights on the front, and they pull the hooks away from him, and then his spotters will pull them back into the, in the Right. Hooks. That is one thing that I, a number of people have talked about, and actually – uh, prior to having this deal with with Westside, uh, Rogue sold something like that, and, and th- maybe and maybe this is one of Rogue's designs that no, has. this is definitely I've seen the video you're talking about, and what Bane is talking about is you know what about kind of the fall away ER style racks like mm-hmm. Chris Duffin uses in his videos, yeah. those are Ghost Strength ER style racks, got it, okay, and they're just like you said, they're putting weight on the back and they're just pivoting them, right? Um, which is ironic because Duffin used to make monoliths. And he made a reverse monoliths as well. Well, he used to competing gear too, didn't he? Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, people have often talked about, you know, is there a way to pivot the ER rack to act like a monolith? I think the only problem is like because of the angle of that and then standing yeah. up yep. and pivoting back and then people, you know. I think it, it's going to cause more problems. Than it it's cleaner to have just a hook that's holding the bar and Correct. a structure above it. Correct. I but agree. yes, could you – I think – there's probably somebody smart enough out there that could create it. And again, now this guy, yeah, uh, Rogue did sell something like that that was like a poor man's monolith, not the monolith hooks, but it was again almost like squ- a squat stand which you could just pull back and had a pivot and put it back. It was again an ingenious design, mm-hmm. but if you were squatting particularly heavy, it wouldn't work ideally, right. and it also not right. adjustable by hydraulic, which to me is another reason why the monolith would be good, even if you were walking out your squats. Yeah, you can, I mean, you have a guy who, like, look at when, I've even had this too, when I'm training with, you know, Joey and Trace and John, you know, we have four different heights. And you have to pick one that basically fits in the middle of all of them. Right, exactly. And when, yes, you know, two guys who are 6'4", one guy who's 5'8", that's just not going to work. And that's where the monolift is superior. No. It is. You can adjust, superior. you can adjust ER racks with their leverage action, mm-hmm. like our bench, Again, now you have to adjust both sides. Yeah. Which on a bench isn't as big of a deal. On a squat rack, I've seen guys at old USAPL meets who are as quick with the leverage mm-hmm. action racks as lifters would or as spotters would be at APF meets with the the monolift. But it is less work, I think, to just yeah. use a monolift or yeah. to use a hydraulic jack. Let's let's keep the spotters like energetic when spotting, not necessarily with distal. Right, not adjusting the weight. Exactly. So yeah, that's kind of my my thoughts on the monolift. Um I like it. I think all organizations will be wise to use it. I, I like the safety aspect of it. I like the I mean, presentation you can, of it. You can attach those uh, spud straps mm-hmm. where if the worst case scenario and something happens and somebody drops a bar, like happens sometimes. It does. It does happen. It does. Sometimes people pass out. Gosh, yes. I, I saw Dick Zenzen years ago pass out. The spiders actually grabbed it, but he was in a canvas suit and he actually like – he like shot out like a spring mm-hmm. to the front of the monolith. It was, Jeez. and the and the head judge Jeff Robert grabbed him because um, he basically passed out at the bottom, right? Um, and then proceeded to go throw up in a bucket, as one does. <laughs> but you know, I think that adds another layer of safety. I mean, we saw a couple lifts 
at the WPO, mm-hmm. hit, the, hit the spotter chains, and yep. it happens. It does. Um, sometimes it just it happens so quick. You look at Ray Williams, his yeah. recent post where he was, I think, squatting either by himself or he, maybe he almost with always lim- does. Yeah, maybe which is it's just to me crazy yeah. that he squats over a grand and uh, you know does have any spotters. The, the that, Jesus spot that just shows what kind of freak he is. He is. He is. But. You know, that adds another. I would rather have good spotters. I'm not a huge fan of the safety chains, but for something like the WPO, um, I, I, I get it. Yeah. I get it just because you don't want, like, your buddy from uh, MGG, you know, uh, who had his finger caught under the bar oh, at yeah, the yeah, state yeah. meet a number yep. of years ago. You yeah. don't want something Sean, like yeah. that. Although somebody could catch their hand under the safety chain as well. Yeah. So, well, th- well, this was like because there was no safety chains. The weight actually right. fell onto the the foot of the. Uh, sure, I understand. So I'm just saying that. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Theoretically, you could cut your finger under yeah. the bar in the safety chain as well. You could so. And I've seen, I've also seen monoliths be flipped. Oh yeah. By the safety chains. I've heard about that? If you drop it from a, if you fall back or if you drop sure, it, and sure. that's why now the lead FTS monoliths have a big warning sticker that says safety chains not recommended yeah. for use with this monolift for insurance reasons. Yes, exactly. But I get it. And I think it does, you know, if you have spotters in addition to safety chains and they can maybe let it down to there, or if it's something that happens at the bottom, mm-hmm. most most monoliths are not going to flip unless somebody just, like Joe Jordan, the infamous video, when he just falls backwards at the yeah, top right. with, you know, eight 900 pounds. Oof, crazy. So, yeah, it was bad. So that's my thoughts on the monolith. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on the monolith and the history thereof? Uh, first of all, very interesting. Like this really u- unique, uh, this piece of equipment that, you know, the first time I saw it scared the hell out of me. Uh, but I, I, I like the mono. I appreciate it. Uh, I like the versatility where you can walk out, but it has the added safety that, hey, you know what? I just want to stand up with this silly thing and let it do its job. Uh, I think uh, I think it's a great piece of equipment for uh, for the sport. And it's you know, versatile that you can change the height. You can mm-hmm. change in and out more easily. Yep. Um, For those yeah. without any shoulder mobility, you know. Yeah, maybe work on that. Who knows? Yeah. So next week, we are going to do a review of Ernie Franz's book, The Ten Commandments of Powerlifting. All ten of them. Uh, released originally back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave you a copy of the original, yep. my copy. Um, and actually, I bought it for Ricky Del Crane because... When I went to Franz's gym in the early 2000s, I asked him to buy it, and he had no more copies. Oh, he had sold out. He didn't have his own copy anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my partner, Howard Penrose, republished it, uh, I think, 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. That's um, a whole story. Yeah, which we're, the, the subsequent episode will be on the republishing of the Ten Commandments of Powerlifting. So we're going to do a review of that. We're going to mm-hmm. walk through a little bit of history on Ernie. We're going to talk about the book, and it's both versions, and mm-hmm. there's a little small differences between the two. Yep. Um, and it's just a, a good vehicle to talk about, you know, more history with Ernie. Because, yeah. again, if we did an Ernie Franz episode, there's just so much to cover, it would be too much. You and, know, you, and part you, of this you, is also building to that at some point. Yeah. No, I, I, we have some on his history. Um, my partner, Howard Pendros, has done some research eventually he would like he has the rights to and would like to mm-hmm. release a biopic sure a biography on ernie it, it's such a big project who knows if it'll happen or not maybe if uh this gym goes michael into, fahey well <laughs> uh, we were looking for a book not a not gotcha. a movie gotcha uh but maybe if this quarantine continues to last longer and longer i will uh i'll start writing it for for yeah. howard instead there you go uh because i'll need something to work on if we go out of commission for too much longer it's true 
But uh, yeah, I think it'll be an interesting way to look into Ernie. And then he's got some interesting training stuff in his book as well. He does. He does. I know I've, I've read the the new version of it before. And so I, I, there mm-hmm. is some good stuff mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. Also, we have to look out. We have some, some bonus content coming. Not going to spoil surprise on that, but uh, more bonus episodes coming during the uh, the COVID quarantine. Yeah, I think as long as, you know, we've got this quarantine and I've got some extra time and you've got a little bit extra time, yep. uh, I think it makes sense. We're going to try to do a traditional episode to release more on Tuesday mm-hmm. and then, you know, more interview, more general kind of freestyling, yep. you know, bonus extra episodes on Fridays. Um, you know, Eric's just, also working on a collaboration of every single time I've said wrong. No, I'm not working on that at all. <laughs> I need an intern to do that. But I will if I I'm I'm working on a new intro bane. Oh. And I'm starting to do a little bit of base research on that and eventually if I get a new intro, then there will be some some bane clips put Wrong. in. Correct, accurate facts. So, with that, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger. <laughs>